real life digital transformation case studies, managing change resistance and measuring change management. Those are just a few things we're gonna to cover today in episode 105 of Transformation Ground Control. This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 105. This is the podcast that has everything to do with digital transformation, including the people, process, technology, and strategy sides of change. With me, as always, is Kyler Cheatham. Welcome to the show, Kyler. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Appreciate it having you here and uh, looking forward to today's discussion, which is going to be very focused on organizational change, which is one of our favorite topics, one of my favorite topics. I don't I don't want to speak for you, Kyler, but uh, I think it's one of yours, isn't it? You like change. Oh, me. yeah. Number one, my favorite, culture and change. Good. CNC. Okay. <laughs> CNC. Um, so yeah, good. We're so we're on the same page there. That's great. And uh, if change is not one of your favorite topics, if you're listening, it, it probably should be because it's so critical to uh, digital transformation success. But today we're going to cover a lot as it relates to change management. We're going to open up our first segment with actually some real life digital transformation case studies. We've we've talked on the show a lot in the past about digital transformation failure case studies, but today we're going to talk about some of the successes. We're going to talk about uh, five different case studies there, as well as our new uh, series, our new staple on the show, which is to pull questions from the audience on social media. And Kyler is going to surprise me with some of those questions. Some of them uh, sometimes are fun, sometimes they're not so fun. So uh, we'll, we'll see which angle you, we go with here today uh, on the on the conversation. And then uh, later in the show, our first guest is going to be uh, Frisco Wiria. Um, she's going to be on the show talking with me about managing change resistance and behavioral change. So very, again, very focused on organizational change management. We'll, we'll get to managing change resistance later on the show with Friska. And then last but not least, in the third major segment here today, we're going to have uh, Donia and Nate from the third stage consulting team are going to be on uh, providing a presentation and discussion around how to measure change management and some of the key deliverables and activities within change management. So uh, should flow pretty nicely. That's the intent anyway, that we go from talking about change management, change resistance, behavioral change in general with Frisca, and then we'll have Donia and Nate on talking later about some of the more tangible aspects of change management as well. So before we get to our guests, though, let's talk through our hot topics here today and some of the, the Q&A you have for us, Kyler. Absolutely. Well, let's start as we always do with your your question jar here. Um, so thank you to all of our audience members that left questions and tagged me in wanting to um, address those with Eric. So I did aggregate them, put them in our jar. Um, you can leave questions on these videos or you can tag me at Kyler Cheatham on all platforms and I will pull your question directly. So with that, I think they're all pretty nice today. So Are they? so. You can take a deep breath. No, okay, good. Not I, any was say, I was going to say it's like a, it's like a giant conspiracy. You're trying to get people in on the setup for, for uh, some of these. Stuff I know, right? <laughs> to roast you? No, it's it's exactly. these are actually very 
normal. So this one is about um, the cloud or cloud systems. And this um, audience member said, are multi-cloud and hybrid cloud the same? It seems like they mean the same thing. Uh, not really. Um, so so hybrid is more, uh, hybrid cloud is more typically using part of your applications in the cloud and part of them on-premise. That's generally what, what hybrid cloud is referred to. Uh, Multi-cloud would be, you, you might have mul multiple uh, cloud hosting providers, like you, you could be using AWS and Azure as two different uh, you know, sort of multi-cloud environments. Um, or you could have multiple instances of, of the same software in the same cloud provider as well. I suppose that would still be, I think that's still considered multi-cloud, although I'm not 100% sure on that. Uh, it's not something I've, I've dealt with a lot. Uh, in my career on, on that piece of it. But uh, in general, there's a subtle difference, but I think the rather than getting caught up in nomenclature, it's more important to think about just sort of what, just conceptually what kind of cloud environment you're looking for, you know, whether it's having everything in the cloud, everything in the cloud in one instance, or having some stuff in the cloud, some stuff on premise, and, and then figuring out how to tie it together. So the good news is regardless of what you want to call it or what terms you use to describe it, there's, there's certainly a lot of options for cloud deployments for sure. And it sounds like a, a really important or pivotal part of the evaluation process in kind of identifying what your cloud architecture looks like. Yeah, absolutely. The overall roadmap, the overall strategy, all that stuff should should define that for you. And if you missed it, we did have Brad Feeks on a few weeks back, um, which I'll tag uh, in this video here. You can kind of check out an in-depth conversation around the cloud and its use cases. So definitely um, check that out. So this one, switching gears a little bit. Um, it's about career advice and consulting. How do you get started in consulting? It seems like many young people have to work for the big three or big five to get the foot in the door, but I don't like the work. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it, it sounds like a question I might have written to my future self uh, 25 years ago. I know. And I think I think what they were saying is they like the consulting work, but the infrastructure and, um, you know, the biases around that can be difficult, especially with an underexperienced person just trying to kind of gain momentum in the marketplace. Yeah. I mean, it it is a tough quandary to be in because when you're younger and you're trying to get experience or you're trying to break into consulting, there's definitely more opportunity with the bigger, larger consulting firms, partially because they're they're built around um, both in terms of their size and scale, but also their their profitability model is built around the younger entry level consultants. Um, they make most of their money on the entry level consultants, and um, it's also a way you know it's a way, it's a way for the the more senior people in the organization to leverage themselves better you know by having more more of an army of younger consultants beneath them. Um, so it does create lots of opportunity, but the bad news is if you don't like that environment, and I was one of those people, I just, I, I enjoyed what I did. I enjoyed um, the people I worked with. This is the irony of it all. I, I really like the people I work with. They're very smart people. I learned a lot. I learned a lot about methodologies and frameworks and how to be a consultant and how to be a good consultant. But I feel like I also, I also learned some bad habits that I had to break, you know, later in my career. Uh, one being the biases that go along with the big, the big company consulting uh, another being the politics. There was so much gamesmanship and politics, and not just not just internally amongst each other. Um, when you get a bunch of smart people together, it just creates this kind of a hypercharged political environment. But you also get a lot of gamesmanship and scheming and politics between consulting firm and client, which is even more unhealthy. So it's a lot of negatives that that I didn't like, and I didn't last very long at, at the big consulting firms. I was only there for 
just, I think just over two years, um, it, at price waterhouse. So it had, I had, I had another opportunity. I might've, uh, pursued it. Um, at the time I was looking for a big name to put on my resume and it, you know, I guess I could argue both sides of whether or not that was the right decision decision. I, it's helped me in a lot of ways, but in other ways it, you know, maybe, maybe I could have advanced faster. I don't know if I would have done a different route, but what I'd say is I think it's good that you're self-aware enough to recognize that maybe you're not happy in that environment, in which case I would say, you know, get what experience you can. Um, you don't have to be there forever. If you can take that experience and leverage it and go to another firm that better fits your values or your aspirations, then then do it by all means. Uh, if you're just starting out in consulting, though, you know, your, your options might be a bit limited. Uh, but if you can find a mid-tier consulting firm that maybe gives you kind of the best of both worlds, it's big enough to give you some good experience and work with smart people, but not so big that you have to deal with all the garbage that comes along with, with the, the bigger uh, consulting firms, then, then I would say do that. Um, certainly third stage, just for the, the shameless self plug here. Third stage is one I love hiring um, people that are that have raw talents, but maybe don't have consulting experience because those people generally are going to advance faster at our company than someone who has a ton of bad habits they've developed by being at one of the big firms for so long. So uh, anyway, I, I'd say look at your options and look for those mid-tier options that might uh, might give you some some good alternatives. Yeah, and just to build on your shameless plug, if you are interested in learning more about working at Third Stage, you can email work at thirdstage-consulting.com. And I'll go ahead and pop that careers page in the comments here as well. Um, but would love to hear from the audience what your thoughts are as well as we have a big consultant community around how you would answer that question too. Um, yeah, absolutely. All right, let's keep it moving here. This one's kind of mean, just, I guess it's kind of like sassy, I would say. Um, digital transformation, <laughs> digital transformation is a made up word. What does that actually mean really? Oh, that's not sassy. That's again, that sounds like something I would say. So <laughs> I planted that question as a softball. So I did. So the folks on you, Kyler, you're trying to set me up and now I, you know, it yeah, all comes back right. to you. Now I'm exactly. <laughs> No, yeah, it is. It is a totally made up word. I, I totally agree with that. It's uh, I don't know where half these words come from, and I don't know who thinks of them. But I don't know if there's like some committee of people that that work at Gartner or something that just their job is to think of like buzzy words, and some of them stick, like digital transformation. And I use it all the time, so it's hard for me to knock it. But I use it because that's the. I wish there was a different word, but it, it's not. That's the phrase that's sort of universally accepted right now in terms of technology change and that sort of thing. Um, but really, you know, I'd say digital transformation, what it really means, in my opinion, is you're changing a business using technology as an enabler. In some cases, maybe technology is the main focus because you're so antiquated or you're such a uh, forward thinking organization that you're just on the bleeding edge of technology and you're going to use technology to drive a lot of the changes that, that sometimes is the case. But more often, it's that there's a business need, there's a, there's a technology limitation that's preventing you from accomplishing your business needs and you leverage technology and all the changes that go along with that, including the people process size of things, uh, you, you, you institute those changes to change your, to change your business. So I'd, be, I'd actually scratch the word digital and just call it transformation. You're just changing your business you, and you're probably using technology to do it. Absolutely. Yep. Definitely well said. And it is a made up word that we often use, um, but it is kind of that all encompassing. The important part of that is it's the full enterprise transformation, right? Um, and that's why many people use it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is a very interesting one. It said, I thought that system integrators were in charge of 
of organizational change management of, excuse me, as a part of their engagement or overall support. Why would you pay double for independent consultants? Oh, interesting. Someone, someone's uh, reading our, our marketing collateral, which I guess that's a good thing. Um, so first of all, I'd say, I'd argue that system integrators don't do change management or don't do it well. They, they might scratch the surface and do parts of change management. So for example, they're probably going to be the ones that are going to want to do the, the training or the training of the trainers um, because they built the software, they configured it, they, they know how the software works better than anyone. So yes, maybe the training side, they're going to be heavily involved. They might also offer some limited communication support, uh, you know, helping draft newsletters and uh, employee updates and things like that related to the project. But to me, that's just a tiny piece of change management, the real core fundamental foundational change management stuff is going to be things like your organizational design, kind of redefining people's jobs, um, assessing what the impacts are between current state, future state, um, aligning organ the organization and the structure with the process and technology changes. So there's a lot of stuff that uh, system integrators typically don't do, which makes sense because they're system integrators, they're, they're technology implementers. So why would they do change management? Now they're going to tell you they do it uh, partially because they they think of change management as what I said, training communications, but they don't think about all the other stuff. Uh, and the other piece of it too, getting back to my previous uh, comment about big big system integrators, especially um, the gamesmanship that's involved. You know, they will work, they'll fight tooth and nail to make sure that they own the project and there aren't any third parties in there. So of course they're going to tell you that any need you have, they're going to be able to do. Um, but again, you have to look at their competencies and what, what they're really good at. And if you're hiring a, a technical implementer to implement software, you have to ask yourself, can that same organization, that same team really be good at change management as well? Um, I think most people would probably, would probably agree that that's not the case. So you're not double paying. I'd say that you're, it's, it's a matter of filling in the gaps and actually doing change the way it should be done rather than the more superficial, let's just train the trainers and, and call it good sort of approach. Yeah, and it, sound, it sounds like based on what you're saying, training and change are two completely different projects. Um, so like everything, they'll cross-pollinate and need to be collaborative, but understanding the, um, the need for that overall culture-focused transformation is really critical to that question and answering that. So, Yeah, absolutely. Agreed. All right, let's do one more. My questions are stuck to my question jars. Let's just mix them up all nice. And, and they're stuck together. So I'm going to go with this one. Sorry, hopefully it's a good one. Oh, I actually was hoping that you would get this one because I don't know what your answer is going to be. Um, I don't how do, you, how do you address a CFO that is hyper-focused on costs of an ERP implementation and can't see past that for the benefit? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, well, I think two things. One is you have to help the CFO recognize that what they see on paper and just because they put numbers to paper or someone puts numbers to paper in front of them doesn't necessarily make those numbers true or accurate or realistic. So in other words, you know, you could, in theory, look at a budgetary uh, a project budget line by line and you could cut a certain amount of those line items to in the name of saving money. Uh, for example, coming back to change management, we could see a line item that says we're spending, you know, 15% of our budget on change management. Um, so we could save 15% if we cut that that 15%. Well, 
yes, on paper, you just saved 15%, but the problem is what's left on paper is not real. That's not going to happen because now you've cut change management and something that's critical to the success of the project, which means if you don't do change management or you skimp on it, you're going to spend a lot more time and money implementing the technology and going through the transformation than you would if you would have invested the 15%. And generally, we find that if you invest in this example, the 15% or whatever the right number is for you as an organization, if you invest that money in change management, you're going to save exponentially more than that in not having project overruns and other things that come as a result of having resistance to change. So that's the first part of it is recognizing that reality. The second part of it, and this usually is even more effective in getting CFO's attention, is looking at operational risk. So CFOs love to talk in terms of risk. That's the way they think. Uh, they're, they're, one of their jobs is to mitigate risk as an organization, especially financial risk. And so when you start talking about operational risk and what if we do this implementation and prematurely go live or go live without having done all the critical things we need to do, what could that cost us as an organization? And for example, let's just say we're a manufacturing and distribution organization. What if we can't ship product for 30 days? You know, we go live, it's a disaster and we can't ship for 30 days. What, what's the financial impact to our business? Is that material? Um, most of the time, yes, that is very material. And yes, that's a risk or, or no, that's not a risk the organization or the CFO is willing to take. So you have to quantify not just the potential benefits, which that's, you know, I guess a third layer here is you want to be looking past the defensive risk mitigation piece of it, which are the first two things I talk about. And then the third piece is obviously if we do it right, you know, what's the business value and the ROI on that. Uh, but in order to get, really get the attention, though, of a CFO, I think you have to you have to frame things in terms of risk. And if you can use case studies and examples, and I've got war stories and horror stories from my past, I'd be happy to share some time that talk about, you know, the, the real tangible metrics behind um, some of the some of the disastrous financial results that resulted from or caused by alleged financial discipline during the during the implementation in the spirit of saving money and slowing the the spend during the implementation, it actually cost them way more than they possibly saved during the implementation uh, as a result of that operational risk. So that's, uh, those are just a couple of examples of how I would frame that for a CFO. Yeah, those are, those are great tactics. And I definitely vote for some war stories about, um, you know, operational disruption and how that affects the overall bottom line of the project um, at some point. And then I also think, based on what you're saying, um, some some C-suite empathy is always a good thing to have. That is the CFO's job. And arguably, being a CFO is one of the hardest roles within an organization because we always call them Captain No, right? That's their job is to ensure that, that it's a healthy business. Uh, so thinking through, you know, just their overall line of thinking uh, is always a good thing. I think a lot of times we see when the proposal goes to the CFO and there's pushback, it's seen as a no. And that's actually not the case. It's just more of a dialogue around it and using that data as armor to ensure that, you know, you are making good decisions and you can and establish that trust is always an, an important piece of that. So definitely an interesting topic that I feel like we could do our own episode on. Well, thanks, Eric, for those insights. And just a reminder to our audience, I do go through and collect all the questions. Um, so you can either tag me directly if you really want your question answered, or I do comb through all of Eric's social media channels, whether it's it's TikTok, YouTube, LinkedIn, 
Instagram. We go through all of those different features and you can tag him and I'll pull your questions. So thank you for all of that great content and that great conversation. But I want to talk a little bit, Eric, about um, five case studies that I pulled from a recent research and report that I've been doing from the Enterprise Project uh, and talk about some of the successes actually in digital transformation. And just to share some data from the overall industry in 2022, we saw in this reporting um, 77% of organizations have commenced their digital transformation journey or project in the last two years. Obviously, with the COVID-19 pandemic, that's been a huge kind of forced transformation catalyst, but only 27% have actually completed it. So really, the big question from these case studies is what leads to a successful digital transformation? So I want to share a few with you and just get your feedback, but it also gives us kind of a tangible scope of what actually a digital transformation looks like within a large company. So this specific one I'm going to start with is a U.S.-based Fortune 100 life insurance company, and they were struggling with handling large volumes of emails, fax, call center audios, and consolidating and merging those um, assets manually. So their legacy system was a significant bottleneck in that overall process to transform their customer complaints, that management of that, to actually the inspection process. So the customer complains, and then they need to be able to to do the next piece of their process. So what they did is they implemented actually a low-code digital transformation platform to address the issues of this manual complaint handling processes and the lack of real-time reporting and overall visibility. And also, which we see in life insurance all the time, regulatory and compliance requirements. Um, They really achieved an end-to-end digitization and inspection process that now gives them 360-degree visibility into tracking, auditing, and seamlessly handling those large media files that they get within the complaints. Um, And they set up a mechanism for real-time reporting status that their customers can see. This platform also enabled collaboration and accelerated communication through intuitive portals, both internally and externally. So this is a kind of a snapshot of success that I want to share with you and then just kind of pull out any nuggets that you might see in how we can create some key learnings from these success stories. Sure. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, a couple of things you mentioned, the the, um, low code, no code, you know, looking for alternate ways of deploying technology in a way that, uh, you know, hasn't historically been used. Um, in other words, not necessarily leaning just on the traditional, you know, big bloated ERP systems. Now you've got other options with, with a low code, no code approach. So I think that's one of the biggest things that jumped out at me as you're describing that scenario. And is, is that unusual, um, for companies that large to implement low code to no code platforms? Um, well, I mean, they've, Historically, organizations have tried to implement um, sort of the commercial off-the-shelf pre-configured solutions, but they found that, you know, there's it, it just wasn't aligned with their needs or it wasn't flexible enough to align with their needs. And so the low-code, no-code is sort of that alternative or middle ground to the other extreme, which is customization, which is a, a bad word that a lot of people don't want to talk about because they don't want to customize the software. So low-code, no-code is sort of the industry's response to provide sort of a middle ground that gives you more flexibility, but not quite as much flexibility as customization. So 
I'd say, yes, it is becoming more common. It hasn't been historically, but it is becoming more common with, with big companies and, and smaller organizations as well. Interesting. Um, well, this next case study I want to um, I want to focus on is in the insurance industry. A lot of these are to say their research. So obviously, the insurance industry has gone through a lot of digital transformation or just overall new technology implementation in the last two years. But this one is a Fortune 500 insurance company that actually focused on document management. So with ECM systems specifically, which is why I kind of want to focus on that as we've seen that's really been more of a need that we've seen that in the past few years um, than traditionally within the, the overall core ERP implementations. So this is one of the largest publicly held property and casualty insurers in the United States. And they handle complex claims in paper and electronic format involving multiple plaintiffs, defendants, and spanning over several years. So this company was dependent on paper-based interactions that caused a lot of security concerns in a highly sensitive environment and um, limited options for new remote workers. The lack of that centralized platform was a huge issue for them that they wanted to address. So what they did is they implemented a holistic enterprise content management system that helped them effectively manage half a million paper and electronic claims for various departments, planning multiple offices in, new, or in, in North America, sorry, with a team of 350 plus business users. And just to share some results that they saw, they reduced the fixed real estate costs by 20 to 30% and improved savings by 15% by reducing electronic storage and duplications of documents. Uh, so that's kind of a, a sh that showcases the need for that ECM, which I know is something we work on a lot here at Third Stage. So wanted to get your feedback on that. Yeah, it's a it's a really important technology, ECM or enterprise content management, especially in insurance, financial services, um, heavily regulated environments where you have to have a, a sort of a traceability of, of documents and you have to have a efficient workflow and effective workflow that manages those. So I think, uh, again, it's a, it's a, it not only is it important to insurance and financial services and other related industries, but it's also a function or a technology that isn't as common or isn't as assumed in a you know big ERP system or or other types of technologies, a lot of times you have to go find a specialized system that can do that, and it sort of starts to build out a case for best of breed solutions because typically you know those those complex enterprise content management needs are more complex or or more robust than what the average off the shelf software can do that doesn't specialize in that in that software. Absolutely, and and it seems as though the security risk was a surprise for me. I mean, it's it seems obvious when you look into it that you would need to that to do that. But is that something you see within our ECM engagements here that security is a, a main need um, along with access? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you you just mentioned two competing priorities, which is accessibility and security, and those are those are in conflict. And so you've got to find that right balance, and you've got to have a tool that allows you to walk that tightrope or to, you know, to, to navigate that gray area or that balancing act you need to go through as, as part of your, you know, running your business and managing all the different pieces. Absolutely. Um, well, really interesting case study. And I, I feel like we could definitely spend some more time on just the, the overall, um, 
content management or enterprise content management systems in a later episode because it is becoming such a, a need um, to digitize in specifically those more traditionally paper-focused industries. Um, so the, the last one I want to share here outside of the insurance industry is a Fortune 500 IT distributor, and they focused on their accounts payable, which is an area we see all the time in digital transformation um, and definitely something that lags behind in fundamental technology. So this is a distributor of IT products and services, and they were seeking a solution that could help them simplify, standardize um, their invoicing process across different geographies. That was a big need for them too. Uh, so they had outdated processes, dependence on multiple systems, and a lot of scattered information sources that made it very difficult for them to ha handle large volumes of invoices. As, as we see a lot in this very labor-intensive process that led to delays and manual errors in ultimately losing money. So what they did is they, they went the low-code um, digital transformation platform route as well and were able to automate the repetitive tasks and mimic those human interactions while maintaining the existing infrastructure and system. Uh, so this solution helped them achieve and streamline an end-to-end -end process of handling invoices, reducing invoice processing turnaround time to two days for 92% of invoices that they received. Uh, and then a, just another kind of success data point that they, they were able to achieve um, that accelerated decision-making, enhanced quality and visibility, improved physical invoice initiation by 99% throughout the organization, and process up to 10,000 invoices per FTE annually. So those are just some metrics to look at, but I know obviously you're well-versed in automation and accounts payable. So wanted to get your feedback on that overall case study. Yeah, it's a great case study. And I, what I love about these case studies you've, you've mentioned so far is that we're covering such different parts of the business or, or different technologies needed to drive the transformation. I think it's a good reminder that no one digital transformation looks the same for different organizations and you have to really sort of define what your priorities are and, and move forward accordingly. Um, so that's one thing. The other, the other thing that is striking here is how many of these case studies are focused on real tangible metrics. And I think if you were to survey most digital transformations that had been completed of those, would you say 27% of organizations, only 27% have finished their digital transformation so far? Um, in this latest go round of digital transformation, um, you know, I, I think if you were to ask most of them, I'd suspect that most of them probably couldn't point to tangible business value or ROI. They might have like intuitive feel that says, yeah, we're more efficient or no, we're not as efficient or whatever. But I doubt most organizations are actually measuring sort of the outputs and the results. So I think those are my two knee jerk reactions. But, um, you know, and I think also, you know, just another reaction to just this particular case study, this third one he mentioned is that you know, technology and digital transformation doesn't have to be super sexy. It doesn't have to be like, you know, focused on bleeding edge type stuff. I mean, what you just described with AP automation and compressing and automating the um, AP cycle the way it has, I think that's there's value in that and there's nothing wrong with that. But I think a lot of times we want to gravitate to the more shinier, sexy objects rather than something that's sort of more fundamental. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think that 
that um, piece of, of metrics at the end. I'd be really interested to hear from our audience if you just pop it on the in the comments wherever you're viewing. What are some metrics of success that you've seen specifically with new technology within organizations you supported or you've been involved in? I think that would be really interesting for us to aggregate that and be able to share it across our communications when we talk about digital transformation. Yeah, I agree for sure. Well, these case studies, um, I'll keep the last two um, so we don't, you know, drown everyone in um, our hot topics because I know we have a lot to get to in, in this episode, um, but I'll plan to share the next two next week. So a little teaser there, um, and we'll talk about um, banking and then also um, some additional manufacturing. Great. Well, yeah, those are, those are super helpful. So thank you for sharing those. I look forward to chatting about the, the other two uh, in our next episode as well. So uh, one thing that I would speculate as it relates to those case studies that you talked about, Kyler, even though we didn't really dive into it in the discussion here, is I would suspect and speculate that the reasons or a big part of the reasons that those projects were successful is that they somehow managed change well and that organizational change management was an effective part of their transformation. Of course, we need to validate that, but just based on our experience, that's what makes, that's the number one thing most likely to make a transformation successful is the focus on, on organizational change management. So with that theme and, and hypothesis in mind, what better way to transition to our next guest, which we're going to bring on after a quick break. Uh, her name is Frisco Wiria, and uh, she's a change consultant, a speaker, an author um, that specializes in change management. She's going to be on the show talking about managing change resistance and behavioral change. So we're going to bring her on the show after we take a quick break. But first, you're listening to Transformation Ground Control. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. Are you looking to stay ahead of the curve in the ever-changing landscape of digital transformation? Then you need our newly released 2023 Digital Transformation Report. This comprehensive report covers the latest trends, technologies, and strategies to ensure your digital transformation is optimized for success. The 2023 Digital Transformation Report is packed full of proven methodologies and insights from experts in the independent digital transformation field. You'll also receive practical insights on how to implement digital transformation strategies within your unique organization. This free report is available for download on our website at thirdstage-consulting.com under our thought leadership section. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 105. You can find new episodes of this podcast every Wednesday, streaming on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as on audio podcast platforms throughout the world. So be sure to check us out and subscribe if you haven't already. Um, I'm excited for our next guest, uh, Frisco Wiria, who's going to be on the show talking about managing change, resistance, and behavioral change. Uh, and if you've been following me and third stage and this podcast for any period of time, you probably know that change management is uh, near and dear to my heart is where I started my career. And it's something that I'm very passionate about. We as a company are very passionate about. So really looking forward to having someone else on the show that shares that same interest and passion. And with all that being said, uh, Frisco, welcome to the show. Hey, Eric, thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Glad to have you here and uh, really excited for today's topic. There's so many different angles we can talk about as it relates to change management, mm -hmm. so much content to cover that we're going to do our best to really do kind of the flyover view of covering change resistance, behavioral change. 
But before we jump into it and, and get to audience questions as well, maybe just give us a little bit of background about you and your company and what you do and sort of how you grew up in this world of change management. Yeah, so I've been in change for about a decade. And during that time, I've managed change efforts across six of the seven continents for some of the biggest names in mining, engineering and technology. So the largest change efforts I've managed was uh, a complete operating model restructure, which impacted about 23,000 people. Um, I started Fresh by Friska three years ago, and it's all things change management, consulting, speaking, um, workshops, facilitation, been obsessed with change for a very long time. So it, it, why I got into it is because I was in general management consulting, and it was only then change management started to be recognized as an actual discipline, not just fluffy comms and training, and it played to my strengths. Every day is different. Every project is different. Every culture is different, and so is every organization. And therefore, you know, what you do day in, day out um, varies widely, and that appeals to me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's uh, sometimes it still feels like the change management isn't fully recognized or recognized enough by mm. organizations. But I agree with it a lot more so now. It's, it's becoming more of a legitimate, recognized discipline now than it certainly was 10 or 20 years ago. Uh, how long have you been doing change management now? How, how long ago did you make that transition? A decade. Yeah. And, and I took a 40% pay cut to start from nothing, start as a change analyst, very green, and just work, work my way up um, with unwavering dedication and laser-like focus. And since then, I've done changes of all shapes and sizes, so restructures, digital transformations. Um, yeah, you name it, I've probably done it. Great. Well, one of the the things that I recognize or noticed in, in your thought leadership as I've gotten to know you over recent months is that you talk a lot about shifting re change resistance into mm. resistance. And I know there's a lot of talk about change resistance. That's certainly a, a big thing. I think most yeah. of us recognize that there is change resistance. But what does that mean when you talk about shifting from resistance into resilience? What does it mean or what's some of the strategies that you've seen work to mm. make that transition? First of all, let's take the literal definition of resistance. So that is the failure to accept or comply with something. And if we think of, for example, the French resistance, it was a secret organization resisting change, resisting authority usually. So this happens in organizations day in, day out when they try to introduce and implement a change to the way that they operate. So people either, they either opt out, they clock out or they check out completely if it's not managed. So instead of the French resistance in change and transformation, people resist in a different way. They either covertly or overtly undermine and sabotage transformation efforts, right? Billions and billions of dollars, hundreds of thousands of hours are wasted every single year because change initiatives fail. So this is often, you know, you'll see it, you know, every day, uh, disengaged people, non-existent buy-in, leadership that are either invisible or don't really own their role in sponsoring and leading a change. You then see what I call these glacial evolutions that masquerade as digital transformation, simply because businesses either don't want to or they can't transform that natural resistance. So resistance isn't a bad thing, it's completely natural, but they can't seem to transform it into something more productive. And that something is resilience. And for me, resilience is defined as the capacity to withstand or recover from difficulties, from bumps in the road. So it's the ability of some something or someone in this situation, organizations, to spring back into shape. So to spring back from change so they are faster, stronger, and better than they were before. That's well said. And I, I love that concept because I think so often 
change management is viewed and used as a more of a defensive mechanism? Like how do we, how do we prevent people from sabotaging the project? And it's not focused on taking it one step further, which is not only uh, overcoming intentional resistance and unintentional resistance, but also translating it into something better than it was before, than the organization was before, as, as you put it. Yeah, like Im imagine when a change is introduced that instead of being met with contempt, it's met with curiosity because, and people exert their resilience instead of dig their heels in with resistance. So that's in the ideal world. Organizations will spring it back into shape and regain, if not improve, their productivity and um, profitability. And in my experience, the most effective um, strategies is really early, early, early engagement, early involvement, participation, buy-in and education. So all too often, um, change experts are brought in as a last resort when things have gone pear-shaped. It's like a, it's like an afterthought when really they shouldn't, they should be in the main body, not the appendix. Right. And what about, um, what do you say to organizations that might say that our people, this all sounds great, Priska, but our people are not, this isn't going to be a problem. Our people are, are on board. They're not going to sabotage you. You talked about sabotage a moment ago. We've got good people. They want what's best for the organization and they're not going to sabotage the organization. And I really don't think change is going to be that hard because these new tools we, we're introducing, these new business processes are so much more effective. Everyone recognizes the need for it. So yeah, it sounds good, but we don't really need change. Yeah, that, that's, a huge, that's a huge generalization. Anytime an organization says, everyone does this or they've always done that i really take that with a pinch of salt but and it doesn't you don't need you know 90 percent of people to resist in order for changes to flop it actually just takes two to three key stakeholders who are quite influential in the business to manifest that resistance and that'll spread like wildfire so and this is also the challenge right people don't buy prevention, they buy the cure and the cure is a lot more expensive than prevention. I always say to my clients that you can spend a reasonable amount of time educating and engaging people about your change effort or a really unreasonable amount of time battling resistance all the way to the bitter end. Right, right. Yeah, that's that's well put that not everyone, it's dangerous to generalize everyone within an organization or even across organizations as well. If there is one generalization to be made, I'd say that it's there is going to be some level of resistance to change. It's just a matter of how severe it is, what the root cause of it is, and mm. do to to overcome it. Yeah, and and often when people make those blanket coverall statements, they're really opinions. There has not been any rigorous data collation or surveying or observational feedback that's been gleaned. So that's also something dangerous. Just relying on your own perspective. Uh, but here's a here's a question I wanted to get to just while we're diving into this whole topic of change management. Um, this is from Sid over on YouTube. He asks, mm -hmm. from from an organizational structure perspective, what department within an institution does the organizational change function tend to reside, or where or where should it reside? Mm. Um, it depends on the objective of the change management function and what the type of change is. So, for example, in my experience, the most um, effective, it's like real estate, right? Location, 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 location matters. If it's in comms, it's in a, if it's in HR, I'm sorry, but it's dead because they don't have a great reputation and often they're the biggest um, resistors of changes. So when my changes have been received really well, they're either in um, operations, the CRO's tent or the CFO. So someone with gravitas, someone with the Perth strings, 
um, someone that's got a good reputation. So usually operations and definitely related to, to performance because you want to underscore the message that change management is not, it's not a nice to have, it's, it's a must have. And we've all seen many examples of organizational initiatives in the corporate graveyard. Some of the most expensive blunders, you know, Daimler-Benz, uh, Blockbuster, et cetera, it's all change management failures. Right. And, you know, it's really interesting that you said that I, I don't know that I've heard anyone say this out loud was the part you said about HR and, and comms. If, if you put it yeah. in. HR and everybody comms, always says that. No one said it out loud. Yeah, but everybody's thinking it. I've just got <laughs> the guts to say it out loud. <laughs> right. But that's, you know, that's the natural inclination for a lot of a lot of my mm. clients and, and yours, too, it sounds like is let's let's put it in HR because that's the people talent management side of things. And so. Intuitively, it sort of makes sense why you'd want to put it in HR. But what you're saying is there's not enough pull and credibility within HR in order for change management to get the recognition and attention it deserves. Yes. I mean, intuitively, yes, it makes sense because it's all it's all about people. But most HR departments, and yes, I am making a generalization, so don't send me hate mail, people. HR functions are generally concerned with compliance, right? Checking the box, etc. They can that that's what they're there for, you know, doing the dotting the I's and crossing the T's. They're not really interested in driving performance, driving innovation, you know, brutal execution and efficiency. So those sort of things usually happen in operations. So my background is mining, engineering, um, and oil and gas. And that's where the change management has, has resided. Right. Yeah. And especially in a operation heavy or mm. intensive industry like you just mentioned mining engineering etc yeah. it seems like it's even more important that you have that yeah and, and and if it is a culture change if it's a culture change effort then it should be the ceo because the buck stops with them it shouldn't be in hr it should be whoever's at the very top they should be sponsoring it not that not the head of hr right now how about this here's here's a question actually i have the same question by two people asked slightly differently uh one is from william on YouTube. And he says, what are good early preemptive steps to take for mitigating resistance from leadership? And then part two of this, let me just sort of dovetail on that a little bit uh, with another question from Sam Graham on LinkedIn. And he says, can change be successful if the C-suite is not seen to be changing first? So I guess maybe just to break that up a little bit, let's start at the top. You know, everything you just said sounds great, but what if leadership themselves are part of the problem? And if so, they are the problem and what do you do to, to mitigate that resistance mm. leadership level? Yeah, this is a challenge, especially the middle layer of management. I call them the permafrost layer because often we expect them to lead their own teams and their own people through change when they themselves haven't gone through the change process. So they themselves are trying to make sense and they're, they're, they're doing a bit of soul searching, a bit of meaning making. What does this change mean to me, etc.? So the first steps when leaders aren't on board with change is to really understand what is the source of their hesitation. And in my experience, if people are resisting change, it's because they're scared of something. They're scared of loss, scared of losing something. And we are more motivated to act by loss than gains. So it's either power, prestige, protection, pay or performance. So if it's, if it's pay, they may be concerned that I don't know, their bonuses are at stake or they're not going to meet their SDIs. Um, so I've seen this time and time again when, when a new performance management system is rolled out and they're like, oh, there goes my A, B and C. Um, prestige is about, you know, maybe they're losing their corner office. Maybe they're 
losing some perks. So that the prestige of their role is losing its luster. Um, performance. This change could mean it's very challenging for them to maintain a high level of performance and thus look good in their job, right? We, we don't know. Um, protection. So this particular leader could be protected, sheltered somehow, which kind of hides their underperformance. And this change, such a restructure, could take the lid off that. So we don't know which of these pieces driving their, their resistance and their sense of loss if we don't, A, talk to them about it. And if we don't have that relationship with them, we need to cast our net wider and find out who does. Because, you know, for example, new client, me sitting down with the CEO saying, so why are you resisting? It's not going to work. Like you can't adopt a, an abrupt frontal effort like that. You need to be a bit more subtle, a bit more delicate and a bit more tactful. But the answer will not come overnight. So it takes, and, and it comes from all sources. It could be, you know, observing them. It could be asking different people in the organization. But really what will help a lot is if you practice a great deal of empathy. So what is it that they're concerned about, right? Walk a mile in their shoes and see things from their perspective to get the answer. Right, right. And so just, you've said it a couple times now, but I think it's super important, those five Ps. Can you just repeat it one more time? The For, power uh, pay, protection, prestige, performance, and power. That's great. That's, mm -hmm. uh, that's I, I love that framing. Is that something you developed? I'm just something curious. Something I developed, yeah, yeah, yeah. From, from many years of experience, it's always one of those Ps. <laughs> I, the five P model by Frisco. You heard it here first. Uh, yeah. uh, well, that's that's great. Um, and then just building on that, this is from from Kyler on LinkedIn. She asked, building on that comment that you just had or that thread about leadership. What is the responsibility of leadership to combat and address resistance? Now, assuming they're on board, that you know we're not necessarily um, addressing resistance to change at the leadership level, although it's, mm -hmm. it's more common than, than many may think. Um, what is it that, what is their role and in, in how should they be involved in, in addressing resistance to change? They need to be hands-on. Like the change management professionals like you and I, we can provide the conditions for adoption to thrive. We can provide advice. We can say, hey, this person may be upset because of ABC, but it's up to the leaders to actually have those hard conversations with people and understand what's driving their resistance and use their own relationships, their networks, their gravitas, their pool to drive adoption and buy-in for this change. Because at the end of the day, that's the leader's role. And this is where I see a lot of organizations kind of fall by the wayside. The leaders tend to subcontract or defer their resistance management responsibilities to their, their 2IC or the, or the consultants uh, such as myself. Well, it's not the consultant's role, it's the leader's role. I mean, that's why they make the big bucks. They are the leader. They're expected to advocate for the change, sponsor the change upwards, build a coalition horizontally of support and manage resistance actively. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Makes total sense. I feel like we um, missed that question by that gentleman that asked, will change still be successful if leaders aren't on board? I would say no. And if there is success, it's very short term. So when I first enter a client organization, always, always, always start at the top. So understand where they sit in the change commitment curve. And if they are resistant, find out why. Right. Yeah, that's great. Great point of clarification. We're here with Frisco. We're talking about managing change resistance, behavioral change. We have a lot more to cover. 
But first, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. And we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings. And the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 Replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 105. You can find new episodes of this podcast on YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter every Wednesday, as well as audio podcast platforms throughout the world. We're here chatting with Frisco Wiria, talking about managing change, resistance, and behavioral change from the folks at my company at Third Stage. Uh, the question is, how do you help leadership identify which of the five Ps is creating resistance? So we know there's resistance, we sense it, we feel it, our gut instinct tells us there is resistance or there's some sort of behavioral people-based issue, but how do we, how do we get to the bottom of what's driving that? Yeah, I want to, so the, the activities that we're talking about now is a key fundamental step in any good change management effort, which is stakeholder analysis. So stakeholder analysis is not done by one person. It's not, not done by me in my office alone. It, it is, you know, shared amongst a few different key stakeholders stakeholders in a business to make sure that we really understand the root cause of the resistance because they're the ones with the years of tacit you know, organizational knowledge, they understand the culture. So the change management consultant facilitates that process. But it's through a combination of, of um, sources. It could be one-on-one -on -one conversations. It could be focus groups, right? People are often um, uneasy to voice their opinions so directly in a one-on-one -on -one conversation, but in a group setting, they're more relaxed. So you, you can collect data in a variety of different ways. Interesting. Yeah. And I think it's, uh, you know, first of all, understanding what those five P's are and sort of what the common root causes are makes it a little bit easier to at least know what to look for and, and mm. know that there's some underlying driver. Because I think a lot of times people, it seems like people that aren't involved in change management day to day, they assume that the only form of resistance is going to be the, the full-on sabotaging, you know, the, the really obvious, yeah. like, yeah. I just don't care about this project. I don't yeah. want this project to happen. I was never on board from the start. And that, I don't know what your opinion is or what your experience is, but that, that's pretty rare that you, you see that, the sabotage. I mean, it, it's usually it a lot more subtle. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so subtle that you can't actually draw a red line that links. Yes, that sabotage. It could be as simple as, 
um, not getting back to the project team on feedback on a particular design by a certain date. It could be two weeks late. It could, you know, this person just may forget to show up to steer co meetings. You know, it, yeah, resistance comes in all shapes and sizes, and very rarely is it that over direct um, sabotaging manner. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you have a you have a fan here in Eduardo on, on LinkedIn. So <laughs> glad, glad to see you in action. So one of your many fans joining us. Here <laughs> Happy New Year, um, Eduardo. <laughs> and then here's a question uh, from Ratna on LinkedIn. Ratna asks, leadership do not always have the operational experience. From mm -hmm. my experience, they have never been in the user's shoes. They have a gap of understanding the resistance. Is this not part of the problem? What are your thoughts there? Um, so first of all, okay, so it, leaders never understand why people are resisting. It's up to the change professionals to explain why they're resisting and, and what's causing it. Um, but yes, leaders often don't walk a mile in another person's shoes. But, but me, for example, the biggest program that I was on, it was for the world's largest single policing jurisdiction. So eight and a half thousand police officers, one and a half thousand civilians. Um, it was a technology project, a very significant one, because it was upgrading a piece of technology that was over 20 years old. And because it was so old, it was like going from the blue screen death of MS-DOS to the latest generation iPhone. But what was most important about this is that it was like a heart and lung transplant. This particular system was dependent, intersected with, you know, Department of Justice, Department of Health, etc. And if you get this change management effort wrong, it really is life and death because it is the system that we rely on. This is in Australia for triple zero calls to assistance or 911 if you're in America, whatever your emergency number is. So imagine sending a helicopter in the wrong direction or police cars to the to the wrong address. So often um, the very senior people, the commanders, wouldn't understand why the change management budget and resources needed to be so large. But it's up to us as the change management professionals to explain that articulately in language that they understand. So it's not up to the leader to understand resistance. I totally disagree with that. It's up to us to get the data, hypothesize, provide a recommendation, and it's up to us to explain that well and push for the case for, for investment in change management. Is it fair to say then that it's it is the responsibility responsibility of leadership to recognize that they don't know what the source is and understand that there is a problem? Maybe I don't fully understand it because I haven't been in the user's shoes before, but there's something there and I need someone to help me fill in the blank. Is that yeah, yeah, yeah? And and the leaders that have already gone to that you know the smart step of engaging change professionals, they're usually open to that sort of feedback. I mean, that's what they pay me for. They don't, they don't pay me for to, to tell them that everything's perfect and this is all that they have to do. I say this is best case scenario, this is worst case scenario. Uh, you need to do these 10 things to get this and then it's up to them to do that. If they choose only to do you know, three of those things, then they need to wear the consequences. And so to really push home the urgency for and the ROI of change management, I turn the tables on them. Instead, it's about risk mitigation. Um, and if you frame things in a loss instead of a gain, you'll find leaders are more receptive to having that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Very well said. Um, just to build on a, the thread prior to this, when we were talking just a moment ago, um, this is from, from William, he just makes a comment. 
that uh, William on YouTube says that the worst resistance will have a pleasant face. Mm. Uh, that. I think that's really well said because I want I, that on a t-shirt. That's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a good idea. Yeah. So some free advice here for, from our, our live stream. We won't charge you for that free advice to just, that's your branding for your next project. Is, uh, yeah. We need say, to have some third stage merch here after the, after the show. <laughs> that can get. I know. Imagine that. Like, Hey, and by the way, if you want to buy a t-shirt that says this, uh, <laughs> buy a t-shirt. Yeah. So uh, thank you for that, William. Great comment. Um, and just sort of going with this leadership theme here, um, this is from Laurel on LinkedIn. Laurel asks, can you talk more about the role of culture in the identification and management of resistance? And can a culture be fostered that could help reduce resistance to change overall? And this actually leads into another question I have for you, but we'll, we'll start here with the, the culture. Can you read it? Can you, can you create a culture that is easier to, or that overcomes resistance easier and helps reduce resistance to change overall? Yeah, a culture that's actually open to that values openness, autonomy, and connection. Because if you are, if you you have a culture of openness and transparency, people will be very comfortable telling you why they're concerned, why they're resisting, and it'll be God, it'll be a lot easier to manage change that way. But people are not forthcoming uh, with their reservations, so you have to do a lot of digging, a lot of detective work to really uncover what what's driving their resistance. Um, can a culture be created that's more open to change and less resistant? For sure, definitely. You can create any culture you want, but it's not for the faint-hearted, which is why the failure rate is like northwards of 86%. It will take time. How long? It's really hard to say because leaders ask me this all the time, how long, how long, how long? It's not dependent on me. It's dependent on how well you live your values, um, how often you communicate it and how regularly your leaders are seen role modeling it, living and breathing it. So it's like, how long's a piece of string? But yeah. definitely I think a culture that's open to change, more embracing is definitely possible. And there is such a culture that 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 where change initiatives are more readily accepted. So as a generalization, I've, when I talk to my counterparts in different areas of the world, they say that the US is actually more more open to change, more embracing, more, more open to trying new things. So very different to Australia. Right. Hmm. But yet in the US and other parts of the world that you'd think they'd be more open to change or, or be more successful with change, you still have super high failure rates that are probably yeah. right around 6%. Yeah, yeah. So even even with that, you know, perceived higher um, openness yeah. and everything, still have challenges. Yeah. And I think you, you also bring up a really interesting point, just kind of building it, going back to the five Ps. So you, you talk about the five Ps, which are the power, prestige, pay, et cetera. That's mm -hmm. more like the individual based Mm. sources of resistance but then you the next layer up is like the organizational dynamics and culture that could cause resistance and you just hit a few you just touched on a few of them mm. which is not having a culture of openness or not having a culture of collaboration or not or, or or operating in silos a lot of times you look at things that are just inherent in your dna in the current model and it's not by design but those things those organizational cultural nuances are the things that cause groups of individuals to resist change or struggle with change. Mm. Would you agree with that? It's almost like there's a, there's individual based resistance, but then there's an the organizational dynamics that could cause even the best intention people to resist. Yeah. Change. I mean, if, if the organization has, and, and also if the organization has a history of failed change initiatives, then people know what to expect and they know it's always painful. So of course they're not going to be supportive. And you, 
to try to kind of explain how this plays out. So I'll, I'll, I think I've told you the story. I'll give you an example of a one-on-one -on -one personal uh, situation and you can imagine how this plays out in large organizations. So I was uh, in Sydney one day walking along George Street, which is one of the main thoroughfares there with my best friend. We were looking for somewhere to have lunch. And out of the corner of my eye, I spot a new falafel restaurant. And I said, oh, I've seen that falafel restaurant be written up in, in the Australian. It had really good reviews. We should try it. And she didn't even entertain straight away. She said, no. And I said, what do you mean? No. Like, I just told you it won these awards. It's been recognized this. And she said, no, I, tr I tried a falafel restaurant once eight years ago. It was really bad. And it upset my stomach. Never want to do it again from one bad experience. But you can see how this plays out in organizations all the time. It's like, oh, we had a restructure five years ago. All my mates were laid off. Communication was shit. Of course, people are not going to put their hand up and think, oh, great, here's another restructure. So it just takes one bad experience with change to kind of really ingrain that knee-jerk negativity anytime a new change is introduced. Even when you say, you know, it's, it's new leaders now, we've got a new consultant, things will be different, da, 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 da. So people are resistant, which is why change management consultants are always on the back foot because usually change hasn't been done well in an organization and people aren't going to put their hand up for more pain. Yeah, well put. It's almost like we all have our organizational and individual baggage, PTSD, mm. whatever you want to call it. Yes, PTSD. Yeah. <laughs> And it gets triggered uh, pretty easily if, if we don't, you know, it, all things being equal, it's going to be easy to trigger that. Mm -hmm. Now, we were talking about culture a moment ago and just building on that thread. One thing that I've noticed following you on. So I, I, I learned about you by following you. I think it was on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And then I started following you on LinkedIn and other platforms. And then we talked and you yeah. know, started talking about doing this collaboration. But um, one of the things I noticed you talk about in some of your thought leadership is uh, digital ready culture. And for example, uh, I'll just talk about, talking about resistance to change before I get to this question. Yeah. Um, so I'm in a hotel room right now, which this is not my usual podcast setup. I don't have my microphone. I don't have my lighting. Uh, I don't have my big monitor. So I have to pull it up on my phone here. And so as I was reading this question, I was thinking to myself, I'm struggling with change right now at the moment as well, uh, which is ironic given the, the top of the conversation. <laughs> yeah. But just to, I guess as a way of saying that we all we all struggle with it, even us as professionals at, at times. But when you talk about culture in an organization, um, how do organizations create a digital ready culture? Because you talk about digital ready cultures in some of your thought leadership, but maybe explain what is a digital ready culture and how do we build that within our organizations? So the future is going to be have like a digital spine running through it. That's without a doubt, whether it's chat GPT, whether it's, you know, algorithms, where it's whether it's analytics. So when I say a digital ready culture, I mean that set of values and practices that enable high performance using technology. So using technology and agility in a, in a digitally enabled environment. So I came across digital ready culture because during my time um, at the largest gold miner on the, on the ASX, I was engaged by the CIO to lead the change management effort to lead their digital transformation. It was definitely not digitally ready. And the key words for digitally ready is things that I've just said, um, openness. Uh, people challenge the status quo and they work with anyone who can help them achieve their goals faster. They don't care about job titles or hierarchy, seniority or tenure. It's just, can you do the work? 
uh, innovation. So they focus on constant innovation and they are very into continuous improvement and profit will follow. Um, agility, so when you encourage innovation, things happen faster. Uh, things move forward and they happen more and they happen more often, more frequently. So that will keep a company ahead of its competition. And lastly, autonomy. So people actually have the freedom to make up their own minds. They do what's right for the company. They set a goal and they're given the autonomy to, to decide how to reach that goal. So those are the four practices um, of a digital ready culture. And I was reading some MIT research um, the other month and they've said that, look, for, for the regular company that isn't a Spotify, that isn't a Twitter, that isn't a meta, you don't have to be this kind of digital pioneer. It's actually not, it's actually okay to just be digital enough. So rather than copy the practices of native digital born companies, instead invest in your culture, in a digital ready culture. And that's what they mean, a culture that's open to change, that's fluid, that's flexible, that's got um, low power dynamics between team members, that just really looks after one another and has their eyes on the prize and will work together to achieve that. Yeah, that's that's really well put. And I like your point about, you know, thinking about thinking deliberately about where you're investing your time and money. It's it's easy to invest or it's easy to want to invest in the shiny, sexy technology object sort of things versus something that's intangible like culture. And if you invest yeah. more in culture and you build that culture and you put more effort in building that sort of culture, not only are you going to get more value out of your your technolo technological investments, but you're just going to deal with change better and you're probably going to just have better business performance. No matter how good the technology is, it's not going to matter if you don't have that culture as sort of the foundation. Yeah, uh, we, we don't need any more new things. Like most organizations are littered with unused, derelict, expired apps. So I was at a very, the second largest engineering company in the world, again, um, leading the digital transformation. And one of those change projects, it sounds super boring, but goddamn, it saved a lot of money. It was applications rationalization. They had 3,784 apps in the business. Wow. That's, that's incredible. And guess how much of them were unused? So different versions, different, um, you know, all sorts of different software. Uh, if I were to take a guess, I'd say maybe 30% were unused. Try 80%. 80% 80 were unused. Unused. Yep. Okay. Yep. And so uh, for one particular engineering software, Leapfrog, they have five different versions. That's five different support costs, five different licensing fees. So that change was to whittle that down. And that number went from a couple of thousand to 490 apps. Right. Wow. Very unsexy change, but very yeah. important to help that profitability and the productivity of that company. Yeah, it's interesting. So you, you have this transformation that isn't adding, in, you know, massive amounts of new technology you're taking away, which is taking away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and there was a lot of effort done to if we've got five versions, which one do we stick with? Right. Which one do we actually use? So that's when ROI comes into it, et cetera. So, yeah, it, it was very interesting, actually. Yeah, and, and software providers tend to feed on that human oh, desire yeah. to want to buy stuff, you know, and, and that's a great ROI case study example of mm. a company invested too much potentially in technology, maybe not enough in the culture mm. or not enough activities. But, but that's an example where people just wanted the latest and greatest, the newest things. It's, shi it's shiny ball syndrome all over again. You don't need all the sh fancy, shiniest new toys. You just need this core set 
that enables you to propel your business forward, whatever that business is. Right, right. Now, we were talking about culture and you, you talked about autonomy and it, and it actually uh, kind of connects well to this question from Sam, which I love this question because I, this is something I struggle with as a change practitioner as well, which is I've worked in countries where it's normal for people to do what they're told. Is change easier or harder in those circumstances? And maybe I'll just back up, maybe broaden that question a little bit more to say, does geographic, cultural nuances and differences, do do, the, do different cultures in different parts of the world manage change or resist change in different ways? And if so, how do you navigate the that piece of it? Uh, definitely. <laughs> um, so in certain cultures, uh, for example, Filipino, uh, Malaysian, Indian, uh, if they don't understand or disagree with something, they actually will not tell you outright. And you need to ask the same thing like four different ways to uncover their baseline understanding of A, what they need to do, B, how this change will impact them, C, are they on board or not, and if not, why not? So yes, cultures impact change management efforts for sure. Um, so a tool that I've used for a number of years now is something called Culture Wizard. Um, Culture Wizard is, you can, there's a drop down menu, you can sort by country and it's got um, characteristics of that particular culture, like how they communicate, uh, their outlook for of hierarchy and power, um, what, to, what to do, what not to do in a business situation. So it, it helps a lot. Um, and it helps you knowing that helps you tailor your change management efforts by region. And if it's a global rollout, always, 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 I'm a big believer in localization. People don't want things done to them. They want things done with head office or with the support of global. So if there's a standard master template for all things change, that's fine, but give the regions the autonomy and the power to adapt to their local to their local um, circumstances. Yeah, that's that's a great point, and and uh, that kind of runs counter to the way a lot of a lot of organizations run their transformations. Is they'll say, well, we'll we'll pick a pilot location. It, maybe it's our mm -hmm. maybe it's our headquarters. Maybe it's just another smaller location. We'll pick that we'll pick that pilot location. We'll define what the changes are going to be, and then we'll take that as a template, and then we'll roll it out to all the other organizations. Or yeah. The, all, all, parts of the organization, which might work well from a, say, a software and process design perspective, but it sort of backfires when it comes to the change acceptance, change resistance and performance improvement. Would you agree with that yeah. or have any thoughts? Yeah, definitely. And and also when it comes to culture, I mean, it is, it is deep rooted. And just because, like, for example, um, I was at a mine site and the GM wanted suggestions to improve health and safety and in that particular ethnic culture it was considered rude to um, suggest changes suggest changes to the way how a leader is doing things today and at each meeting um, he would draw a red box and he'd, he'd stand in the red box and he'd be like right we're not going to leave until someone gives me a suggestion on how to improve but the first time he did that, obviously, he got crickets. And the meeting ran over time and he had no choice but to abort and leave. But he kept on doing it, kept on doing it. And after meeting four, 
he then he then was smart and allowed quite a big buffer time after that meeting. So there's no other meetings. So people had no choice but to sit in very uncomfortable silence until someone spoke up and said something. So when that happened, he jumped on it. And just like change professionals, we need to jump on it when people show early signs of adoption and support for a change. He praised that person, you know, promoted promoted the, the suggestion, talked about it all the time. And from then it got easier and easier to do. But lots of people give up after the first meeting and they don't get an answer. They're like, oh, well, that didn't work. I'm not going to do that again. But you can't give up. You have to keep going, keep going, show consistency because consistency breeds trust and trust breeds commitment. Mm. Yeah, well, well said. We're here with Frisco. We're uh, talking about managing change resistance, behavioral change. We have a lot more to cover, but first we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 105. You can find new episodes of this podcast on YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter every Wednesday, as well as audio podcast platforms throughout the world. We're here chatting with Frisco Wiria, talking about managing change, resistance, and behavioral change. Here's a sort of a, a related question here from LinkedIn. It's how important is establishing the trust of the team in you as a change management professional? And what approaches do you use to establish trust? And maybe I'd add to that, not just for... Not only is it asking the question of is it important to establish trust between, um, you know, transformation team and change management professional, but also just in general as an organization, how important is trust in in overcoming change resistance? Um, I think current. I think trust is the currency of the twenty first century. So, right, the the fundamental building blocks of high performing teams is is trust. So I think without it, you're not going to get the results that 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 you want when it comes to adoption, commitment, engagement, etc. Um, how to build trust is really openness, um, getting to know really grassroots stuff. Like, let's just get back to basics, like introduce yourself, um, explain what you're there to do, um, understand who they are and what they are trying to do. And slowly but surely, you will build that trust. It just, people just need to get to know you. And as a change management professional, Often we, we face very high levels of distrust. Like the number of times I've sat down one-on-one -on -one with someone and they think ch the change means they're getting fired or they're getting made redundant or, you know, something diabolical is happening. So that if you know that, just be patient and just small steps, baby steps right. to build trust. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. The trust being the... Uh currency of the, the 21st century, uh, it seems like with technology accelerating and, um, you know, just today at lunch, uh, I was talking to colleagues here in the UK about 
uh, artificial intelligence and the impact that artificial intelligence is having on our ability to write, mm-hmm. you know, potentially our ability to write or even our ability to have a conversation like this, because in theory, you and I could have just created avatars and typed up some scripts and have those two avatars talk to each other and it made it look real, but it wouldn't be real. Yeah, but I trust you, Eric. I already added you on TikTok, so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, you must really trust me if you. If you're <laughs> um, but but to, to the point, though, I think tech technology has a way of making trust more scarce. And, it, and so there's a, like a scarcity of trust. Mm-hmm. You know, you talk about enterprise technologies too. You know, all these technologies that could automate your job, it could, it could eliminate your job. It could, it could make it easier, but it could also totally eliminate your job. It could totally disrupt your job. So there's all these reasons not to trust in the world today, especially when it comes to technology. And I feel mm-hmm. like you, I hadn't thought of it the way you said it, but trust is becoming uh, more of a commodity, more of a, a currency, as you put it. I think that's a, a really well well stated uh, comment there, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, another question I had. Um, is related to uh, motivating people. So, so when I, I think the main outlet, like I said, I, I started following on was Instagram, and a lot of your Instagram content seems to focus more on sort of motivating people to change mm-hmm. and motiv- motivating people to lead change and things like that. Um, what are some of the biggest motivators for change that you've seen be most successful? In other words, you know, I, I know we talked about the things that could threaten change, the, mm-hmm. the five Ps, for example. Those are the reasons I might not uh, accept change. But short, in addition to mitigating or maybe eliminating those those threats or risk, what are some of the other ways that you've seen work in terms of motivating people to want to change and motivating leaders to want to lead change and that sort of thing? Um, depending on the type of change, I think it helps for people to understand the change commitment curve. Like it's actually normal to feel anger, to be in denial, to resist, etc. But then you show that you gradually move forward and you move into empathy and openness and understanding and meaning making and finally commitment and it's okay to go back and forth like change is not a linear process like some days maybe off days and you're like you know what I don't know where we're even doing this and you'll go back a a few stages that's completely normal but people don't know that they think there's something wrong with them that they should be you know holding hands and singing kumbaya and saying yay this change is going to be amazing but that rarely happens in real life. So first of all, education, education on the psychological states of change, what people go through will help normalize that because um, change, the way change is managed has a massive impact on, on mental health. So I think that that's a first step. Um, when it comes to motivation to change, I think there's nothing like use generated content. So I was um, working for a big oil and gas company and there was um, a technology project that I was on and um, it was unscripted. And this guy just posted a video clip of him talking about tips and tricks for this particular platform and posted it on Yammer. It was funny, it was authentic, um, and it went viral. So user generated, and, and then it created like this kind of competitive rivalry for people to kind of do their own version of what he just did. So user generated um, content definitely. Um, make it fun and bite-sized. So micro change management, don't picture this as a massive tidal wave change that gets people's backs up and gets people resisting and scared straight away. Instead, make the change so subtle that's nearly invisible. So for example, um, I've used daily 30-second pop quizzes before just to A, gauge sentiment, B, um, understand where their knowledge is at, uh, and C, uncover any resistant hotspots. So that's that helps reduce fear of the unknown. 
um, something really creative and humorous. Like, for example, I've organized field trips before where the change was a physical relocation, new CEO, new branding, um, changes of all shapes and sizes, but all packaged in the one relocation. And I was getting rumors of gossip such as, um, for example, there was no easy public transport in the new location. I was getting rumors like, oh, trains are not safe and dirty. Um, you know, it's not safe, blah, blah, blah. I literally took people with me on the train and taught them to tap on here, get on the train, tap off. We get to the other side. When we get to the other side, there's the IT people there to demo the new tech. There's the security guy to kind of walk them through the new building. There's local businesses with goodie bags waiting. So, so do things different if you want to break out from the norm, if you want to be remembered in people's minds for something positive, something fresh, something creative and associate that change with something, something good, you need to lay the groundwork to make that happen because good change does not happen by accident. You don't just wake up and say, hey, presto, things have changed. It happens by design, by intent and with a lot of discipline and commitment. Right. Yeah. Change doesn't happen by accident. There's another another t-shirt slogan um and sam you know the, this the thing i love about this audience is not only is it very knowledgeable about digital transformation but it's very creative too and so sam says uh he hopes that we've added trust is the currency of the 21st century to the new range of uh third stage t-shirts so, <laughs> got a whole line of change management t-shirts apparel <laughs> uh in, in the making here for sure mm. um so there's another question here that it goes back to a point you were talking about earlier, but I, I think it's worth noting because I think this is, in my opinion, one of the hardest aspects of change management. And that is back to the leadership thing. And I, I don't want to beat the dead horse, but it is important to to touch on this because a lot of times what happens is you come in as a change lead, whether you're an outside yeah. consultant and or you're, you're part of a change team internally and you're having to manage change up, you know, managing change side to side and down is in some ways easier because you have the authority, I guess, you know, for lack of a better word to do that. Mm -hmm. But when you're CEO or CFO, um, so, so let me go back to the question then this is from LinkedIn. How do yep. you convince a CFO or CEO that, that he has to allow changes that he wants when he is the main obstacle here or she is the main obstacle. Sometimes words are not aligned with actions and at least to affect trust in the leadership. So, you know, sort of like walking the, talk and, and uh, you know, ensuring that your leadership team is on board and, and how do you, how do you convince a leader that they're not, that they're doing something that's undermining change or it's creating some sort of problem with their intention? Oh my God, that happens all the time where, you know, one offhand remark by a CEO can kind of erode two months of change management efforts, right? Um, right. commitment building, et cetera, et cetera. Um, in that situation, it really depends. And often um, you may not be the right person to give that person the feedback. Uh, so I'm part of a, a network of global change management professionals. We collaborate together on large projects. And you got to realize how you are perceived in the eyes of that CEO or CFO. And this is the way of the world. Um, you're not always the best messenger. So understand who the best messenger is um, and also what seems like a really big change that you're asking this CEO or CFO to take um, in their organisation because, say, their organisation is very conservative, very command and control, 
But if you position that same change in the backdrop of the industry, it can be much more palatable to them. Mm. So I, I would say, you know, get a bigger backdrop, position it against the context of an industry that usually encourages the CEO or CFO to be more open to even bigger change that they have to do. Um, be selective of the messenger. You're not always the best person, newsflash. Um, so find out who that person is. Um, and lastly, uh, nothing like a bit of competitive spirit. So when I was at a large mining company, uh, they had quite a toxic culture. And we were trying to get, trying to convince the CEO to green light a culture change initiative. Um, in that situation, take yourself out of the picture. So what I did was get third party information, uh, surveys, uh, quotes, and at, in that situation, Glassdoor rankings. And I showed how they compared against their main peers. They came last. I think wow. his eyes went red, it was like, <laughs> like a red rag to a bull, you know, and he's like, huh. And I knew that, I knew that, I knew that about him. I knew he was very competitive. And so this comes back to step number one, know your stakeholders, stakeholder analysis, change management, fundamental process 101. If you know what drives them, what, what motivates them and what they're scared of, then you will know how to convince them. If you don't know, then you haven't done enough homework. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really well put. I mean, you've got to you've got to understand the lay of the land and be realistic. I think a lot of times executives and leaders hear what they want to hear. Or they have they have uh, happy years or whatever you want to call it. And you show them some actual data, whether it's from Glassdoor or mm -hmm. a stakeholder assessment, organizational assessment, whatever it is. And all of a sudden, the you know, like you said, their their eyes kind of light up or widen, like almost mm -hmm. a disbelief. But you, you have to go through that process of making sure the leadership understands uh, what the issues are and you know, that you're, that you're being realistic about it for sure. Mm. So, um, one last question, actually, this is totally off script and it, in some ways it's not fair because I didn't tell you that I might ask you this question, but I just thought of it because uh, you've mentioned a few different examples, um, of change case studies that you've been involved with. Which I, mm. which I, think it's great. I love how you keep tying it back to real life examples from your experience, but can you off the top of your head, think of, what your favorite or let's call it let's let's call it your most difficult change initiative what what's the most difficult change that you've been involved with uh, organizationally uh so that's probably the one that i talked about the, the field trip uh, just because okay. i would i was the fifth change management consultant in the door the previous ones have been terrible um the leadership was really non-existent like they weren't earning their role they were hiding behind the consultants to deliver bad messages um, at that time, it was bushfire season, so this was the fire authority, um, and the change was a brand new building they were supposed to move into two years ago. And not only were they two years late, it was probably $12 million out of budget. And a lot of them, even though the current building that they were in was really decrepit, it was falling down, it was just, it was ready to be demolished. And that's what was happening. It was being demolished to make way for a five-star hotel. A lot of these people had really strong emotional connections to that building and they'd worked there 10, 20, 30 years. So, you know, they, they were resisting really damn hard. And that was a lot of overt resistance, like bullying, 
you know, nasty mm. emails, not CCing me on emails, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that was probably the hardest. Um, but that field trip that I organized, that was a lot of work. That was 450 people. So 20 people at a time. So you can imagine how many times I took the train up and down, up and down, up and down. But it was worth it in the end because after the first trip, when the first cohort came back, um, news spread like wildfire. Like, oh, my God, the new building. So, so lots of natural light. Our new computers are great. Like, actually, the train was a lot faster than I thought it would be, et cetera, et cetera. So I set to do, you know, set to kill a few birds with the same stone, so to speak, really kill those rumors and so it's not just me saying this, it's it's their own peers. It's uh, it's other people in the business who have actually gone there, experimented with the change. Guess what? It wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. And they then talk about it, you know, um, amongst their amongst their team. So that, that was the most challenging one by far. Yeah, interesting. Mm. And it's it's interesting that some of the creative strategies and tactics you took to to overcome that that challenge too. Mm. Um well, good. So, uh, I really appreciate you being here today. Uh, this hour has flown by. Uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. Too. Yeah, it has. <laughs> appreciate having you on this on the show. What What are the some of the best ways for those that aren't familiar with you or just learning about you for the first time here today? What are the best ways to uh, follow you, to contact you, tell us how to how to get a hold of you? Yeah, yeah. So uh, you can follow me, add me on LinkedIn, uh, Friska Wiria. My website is freshbyfriska.com. So a lot of the strategies and activities that I've told you um, today, I actually teach them in several different uh, varieties of workshops that I've got. So you can send an inquiry through my website. I'm also on Instagram, freshbyfriska, um, and YouTube of the same handle as well. All right. Thank you, Frisco. Great having you on the show. Really good discussion and, and really good engagement and questions from the audience as well. I love some of the questions we, we got from the audience here, and it really uh, brought out a lot of good topics that we wouldn't have otherwise gotten to. So really appreciate that. Uh, we're going to debrief and, and cover or recap some of the things we talked about in that interview. But first, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 105. This is the podcast that has everything to do with digital transformation, including the people, process, and technology sides of change. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and audio podcast platforms throughout the world. So be sure to check us out there if you haven't already. Um, so Kyler, we just had Friska on the show talking about managing change resistance, behavioral change, just all, all kinds of stuff related to change management. Some of it was planned and some of the discussion was unplanned and the audience took us in some interesting directions there. Um, but what were some of your comments or takeaways from that conversation? 
Well, that was outstanding. I, I'm scared to say it might actually be my favorite interview that you've done um, on ground control so far. Uh, it w was absolutely fascinating in the fact um, of understanding not only the the core foundations of resistance, how you identify that, the responsibility of leadership and creating that culture. So I feel like it really went full circle in describing the overall evolution and journey of organizational change management and most importantly, its effect on culture. So um, I'm a huge fan of, of Friska and her, her work and and uh, just understanding the importance of having that conversation on a day-to-day -day basis. I also think that she did such a good job of explaining the role of change consultants, because I think change consultants carry a resistance in themselves in the fact that that an organization is like, okay, so so they're going to come in and tell us how bad we are and how we need to change, but yet they know nothing about us. They don't work here on a regular basis. So that sounds like a terrifying experience. And she, she really talks about the partnership of the organization and the expert to, to actually strategically attack any resistance or, you know, any misconceptions in general around a new technology or just changing or nudging culture and the responsibility of the stakeholders to say, you can have a, the best change consultant in the world, but if you're not actually going to set expectations and create an environment in which you can activate those strategies as an organization and own them internally, then there's going to be no impact. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think he, she did do a good job describing the balancing act of leveraging that outside change experience and change methodology and framework, but also keeping ownership of the project and not necessarily assuming that you could just outsource the entire thing to your change consulting team. So. Uh, I agree. She did. She did a really good job there. And I also found it fascinating, uh, borderline alarming because a lot of our clients do this, but, but the comment about how change management should not reside within HR, um, that's, I mean, that's like the natural instinct or the natural inclination of most of our clients is like, Hey, we've got a big HR and talent management team. Let's, uh, they're good with dealing with people. I'm not, I'm a leader. I'm not good at <laughs> change or people. So I'm going to let HR handle it. Um, you see why organizations do it, but, you know, it was interesting to hear her say that, you know, that's not a good place. And I, I tend to agree with her. It's just, uh, I think one thing though, is it's a lot easier said than done to say operations or the CFO or someone like that should, should own the change or the change management team should, should be reporting up to them. Um, sometimes, you, you know, sometimes settling for change in the suboptimal position on the org chart is better than not having the change at all. So I think that's, that's part of the tricky part of, it, of what she said, but I, I totally agree with what she was saying though. Yeah, I think that was like a shook keyboard moment. We're all, you know, watching the live stream. And then she said that, and you know, everyone snaps back to say, okay, here we go. Like, we're going to have a truthful conversation around that. I think that that's super refreshing. And it doesn't knock HR in any way, shape, or form, right? They still have value to the organization. But they can be siloed, just like other departments like marketing that aren't so much of a revenue driver, but they should be, right? That should always be what your goal is within that organization. Understanding the operations, understanding the data and the measurement of organizational change, that's what's going to get you in that 27% of success when it comes to the case studies we talked about earlier. Uh, and understanding the, the tactical approach to it, not just you know sitting around in a room saying, 
you know, what is everyone scared of change? Like, are you scared of change as opposed to understanding what that motivation may be that industrial psychology piece of it is so, so critical. And I think it's just mostly people don't know how to do that nowadays because technology truly is the backbone. It touches every piece of the, the enterprise. Nothing is without technology at this point. So it takes a new approach to understand what motivates departments or organizations around technology that you might not have ever really considered. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, and one thing I wanted to ask her, but I, I didn't want to go down this rabbit hole, but I'll bring it up now since, since she's not here. But but she made a comment in sort of in passing that said uh, when we were talking about the, you know, how change management should not be, should not reside underneath HR. She said something along the lines of HR oftentimes struggles the most with change. And I, and I, I was, I really wanted to go down that, down that rabbit hole, but I, I resisted to, to understand why she thinks that I, I don't disagree with her. I've seen that before, but I just wanted to get her perspective on that. Maybe that's a, a follow-up we have for her uh, next time we're on the show, but it, it, it also, it, if, if I would have gone down that rabbit hole, I also would have asked, do you think that HR people are as good with people and managing change in general as a lot of people think they are? Uh, which leads you to wonder why are, why are some of these people in HR and why do these functions exist if they're not good at managing change or managing people, um, if that's true. So uh, anyway, there's a, there's a lot of uh, explosive Pandora box sort of stuff that uh, we could open up uh, on a future episode potentially uh, on that whole thread there. But I'd be curious to hear from the audience too, you know, in the comments here, just drop in the chat. What do you think? Is HR a good place for change management to reside? Is it a bad place? Can HR manage change effectively? Do they manage people effectively or help manage people effectively? Or are they effective in your organization? I'd love to hear, I just love to hear sort of the inside scoop from people that are that are working with HR departments every day. I, I mean, I think that's a fundamental question. And it's something that HR ideally would be a huge support system when you're implementing a new technology or going through a holistic changes in organization because they are supposed to be the people experts. But we see that, um, you know, a lot where they, they actually don't have a great pulse on what's happening within the operations of the organization. I think that's a huge opportunity in that assessment process to really understand where are those gaps within your culture and how do you create and fill those gaps with empathy, like Frisco was saying, with an understanding, a collective united understanding of this is your job, this is my job, but we have a common goal. So how do we understand each other and approach it without getting you know, scared or feelings hurt around what value will I bring to the organization? What value will my department um, and birth fear in that conversation? I think that's so critical. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Well, I feel like we could sit here and talk about that conversation all day, okay. um, but I did pop all of um, Friska's uh, Instagram and then her website as well um, and some other resources that you two chatted about. Um, but I, I'm, I'm here for a second follow-up on um, a conversation with her. And thank you for all those great audience questions. If you do have additional questions in this thread where you're getting the podcast, I'll go ahead and pull them over and tag Eric and Friska as well. So please pop all of your questions that you have as follow-up, and we'll continue that, that dialogue um, on our platform and future episodes. Yeah. Yeah. And if this is already, so it sounds like if you're saying this is, this might be your favorite interview we've ever done on this podcast, that, that means that she might show up in our best of 2023 and we're already, we're only in January, but we already, oh, we're already, man. we're already looking for, for our top 10 of 2023 and she might be on it. So we'll, we'll see how the, how the year unfolds here, but 
definitely a great guest. I agree with you on that. She was, she was really good in the audience. Uh, that might be my favorite in terms of audience engagement. Uh, that's one of the best, uh, best conversations I've seen from our audience. So I really appreciate that. It makes my job way easier when you have great questions coming from the, the audience, especially when some of them are funny, uh, funny comments and entertaining comments too. So I appreciate that. And we're going to continue building on this theme of change management. We thought it'd be good to uh, sort of take the strategic higher level concepts that we talk about with, with uh, Friska and build on that and get into the, a little bit more of the meat of how to measure change and what some of the deliverables look like within a change management program or what they could look like within an effective change management program. So what we thought we'd do is play you a clip from a presentation that uh, Nate and Donia from the third stage consulting team, uh, Nate's based here in Denver in the United States. Uh, Donia's based in our South Africa office, um, just outside of Johannesburg or outside of, or she's in Cape Town, actually. I think she's outside of Cape Town. Um, so we're gonna have them, they, they gave a joint presentation at a recent online event, which is uh, focused on change management and the measurement of change. Um, so we're gonna play you that clip and then we'll talk about it as well. Um, so it's a really good, it's a really solid clip. So look forward to playing that. So. We'll get to that here in a moment, but first we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 105. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on social media platforms and podcast platforms throughout the world. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham, as always, and we are going to play you a clip with uh, Nate and Donia from Third Stage Consulting, giving a presentation that they recently gave in one of our online events, uh, talking about the measurement of change, and they also get into some of the actual deliverables and some of the tangible aspects of change management programs that you could be thinking about as it relates to your digital transformation and the change initiative within that. So uh, why don't we play the clip and Kyler and I will come back and discuss some of the, the findings and takeaways. I'm here today in the capacity of the change management and learning enablement lead for third stage consulting for this region. I've done transformation projects across the world in multiple industries most recently in the HR space, which is quite of interest, but of course, I also have banking, insurance, telecommunications, and IT experience. Uh, I'm joined today by my colleague, who is our practice lead in Colorado. He's the practice lead for change management for the US region. And I'm going to hand over to Nate to introduce himself. Thanks, Danya. Um, hi, this is Nate Strohr with Third Stage Consulting. And I've uh, spent most of my career over 20 years in digital transformation, software selection, and change management. And really excited to talk to you today about some of our change management projects that we've been engaged in in the last year. We've 
huge uptick in, in clients requesting change management services and have really seen not only uh, a huge uptick in the desire to have these change management uh, initiatives, but also in the size that we are seeing from our clients, anywhere from clients all the way to 30-person organizations. So we're really excited today to talk to you about these change management deliverables, which are the same no matter what the size of the client. I want to give you some examples of the, um, not only the deliverables, but yeah, some examples of what we've seen with our clients and some of the trends that we've seen throughout the last year on some of our projects. So I'll turn it back over to you, Danya, and we'll get started. Thank you. Thank you so much, Nate. And I just want to really also reach out to the audience to say, you know, we want we would like to know what kind of deliverables you do as well. And just share with us, give us some feedback about what we're saying. We want to make it interactive. And uh, I did mention it in our earlier session. I'm just going to say it again that we specifically selected this topic because we believe there's a, there's been requests for it. And I've also heard it when we go present to clients, when we meet with clients, they say, what exactly do you do for change management? What are the deliverables? And sometimes it's really good to go to the foundation, to the core of the this offering and share it with you. We're going to keep it simple. We're going to look at three elements. We're going to look at what the deliverable actually is, why we do it, and how it's done sharing of some stories, some case studies, some examples along the way. So I know we've only got probably now like 40 minutes. So <laughs> let's get right into it. As I said, we're focusing on five key deliverables today. The organizational ready assessment, readiness assessment, the communications plan, change impact plan, training plan, and very important KPIs and metrics. Let's start with the organizational readiness assessment. This is a document. So if we look at what it is, it's a document that gets delivered. But this is like, I want to say, the, the meat of everything. The, it, it encapsulates the vision of what this is, what change is going to happen. So it's got some key elements, such as uh, the vision statement that comes out of a stakeholder assessment, uh, stakeholder workshops that... Nate will be taking you through. It looks at why this the change is being done. So as I mentioned, what change is being done, why the change is being done, who are some of the key high-level stakeholders, what are some of the challenges and risks that we foresee, what are the strengths that we know up, up front, what are the critical success factors, how are we going to measure the success? And what support do we need? For example, very critically, you might need specific leadership support. Or if you are part of a bigger group, you might be one of the subsidiaries or a smaller unit and you need support from group as well. Um, what this also contains is the approach to change management and which team players are you looking at including. When I look at the why, I don't usually do this, but I'd really like just to read the statement here because I really think it explains it very well. It is to provide and agree upon a clear understanding throughout the organization of where we stand now, where we are heading, how ready we are to get there, and who and what needs to happen to increase the odds of success. 
So this is really about establishing a common understanding amongst everybody that it's involved, especially the, the team players, the people that are involved in the development and the execution and involved in making the change a success. Also, the outputs from uh, the readiness document will be used in the further uh, documentation or assessments that we will discuss with you down the line. I will pr probably want to come back and share one or two stories, but I will hand over to Nate to speak about the how this is done first. Great. Okay, thanks. Um, you know, I just to, to reiterate, uh, and then we'll jump into the how, but this is really, this the organizational readiness assessment is really sort of the kickoff. This is really um, to, to sit down and to look at an organization and say, um, here's where you want to be, here's where you are, here's where you want to be, and here's how the technology will support you to get. We, when, when we do, when we create these deliverables and when we go through this phase of a change management initiative, it's really sitting down and it's meeting with the organization, starting with the executives, really sitting down and saying, where are you now? Now, where do you want to be in a year and three years from now? Technology gets you, help you to get to where you want to be, and what do you want to get out of this initiative? It's really sitting down and saying, okay, what do you consider success? What do you consider um, coming out of this, this initiative? What do you consider the main things that are needed to get you to where you want to be? We spend time in workshops with both the end users, the executives, uh, we also conduct surveys um, and really try and get a feel for how ready the organization is. Uh, are, is, it a, is it an organization that's very tech savvy? Is, is the change going more of a change in how they do business or is it going to be a monumental change? Is it they're going to be a paradigm shift? Are, are we going from, I think I heard one of our clients uh, mention the other day, they said, you know, we're going literally from the equivalent of a rotary phone to a smartphone. We are so behind in our technology and what we're going um, and what we're implementing here and where we're going is a monumental leap. That that gives us an idea of how much we have, how much change the organization is going to see. So the, the basically the how and the why and what, what we get out of this or of this deliverable is to really, here's where you are, here's where you want to be, Here's how ready you are for this change, and these are the areas that we need to focus on the most to successfully implement this change. Yeah, and I wonder if we might be able to, to look at this question. I think it's a great one, um, and I actually have no idea what the answer is um, from a, a user on LinkedIn. Um, so they asked, what percent of transformation programs prepare an organizational readiness document? And I'll answer first and say, not enough. <laughs> Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, and I, I think I th this is a great question. And, um, you know, I, I think it's it's really uh, it, I guess it, it really, uh, you know, kind of give you that on the fence answer. But um, I would say that not enough and it's probably not taken into enough detail. It's not given enough emphasis and it's not really sat down and formalized. And I, I, I'll go with the, with the great example and it always starts with the executive visioning session. We, um, when we kick 
these change management initiatives, we sit and we say, where, where is it that you are and where is it that you want to be? Without a doubt, every time we go into these sessions, the executives will say, we know where we are. We know where we want to be. We're all in alignment. And then you send out a um, questionnaire ahead of time saying, what, what will the technology give you? Where do you want to be and where are you going to go? If you send out 10, you're likely to get eight different answers out of the 10. So I, I would say that while people a lot of times finish this step, they um, they they prepare an org readiness document. It's really not just preparing the document, but it's going through the exercise. It's really sitting down and saying, let's make sure that even though we all think we're aligned, let's make sure that we're all going to discuss this and really come to an alignment as an executive team. And then take that vision and, and spread that vision throughout the organization so that everyone really knows here's where we're going, here's what the change is going to involve, and here's how we're going to get there. Yeah, thanks, Nate. I just wanted to add to that, specifically picking up where you say, you know, sometimes it is done, but what I have seen is about the thoroughness and the effectiveness of it. So sometimes there's sections such as the vision or, you know, I have seen something called a, a vision document or, um, you know, that picks or some slides, I wanted to say, like a couple of slides that highlights the vision, but I've also seen the, the real thorough details behind the scenes that can happen so real thorough list of questions so what is the scope of this who will be impacted what is the level of change per area what is the perception of the change per area how will you meet you know success how will you get to the benefits so as my colleagues have said <laughs> it's probably not done enough and and more often not done thoroughly enough Okay, we're here replaying you a clip of Donia and Nate from Third Stage Consulting talking about measuring and delivering organizational change programs. We've got a lot more to cover, but first we're gonna take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Are you looking to stay ahead of the curve in the ever-changing landscape of digital transformation? Then you need our newly released 2023 Digital Transformation Report. This comprehensive report covers the latest trends, technologies, and strategies to ensure your digital transformation is optimized for success. The 2023 Digital Transformation Report is packed full of proven methodologies and insights from experts in the independent digital transformation field. You'll also receive practical insights on how to implement digital transformation strategies within your unique organization. This free report is available for download on our website at thirdstage-consulting.com under our thought leadership section. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 105. We're here playing a clip with Donia and Nate from Third Stage Consulting talking about uh, measuring change and some of the deliverables within change management. Coming out of this division document, if it is done properly and thoroughly, very likely you will get an idea of the communication, the key messages, and, and basically the gaps in the understanding and what are the key messages to keep everybody engaged and to distribute the communication, to distribute the information. 
What is very key to highlight about the communication plan is that it should have the foresight of not just looking at the communication for the current engagement, but the ongoing communication post go live. Um, I'm sure many of you that have been involved in a change either from the the in the user side like from the front end or the back that you know some you'll see something goes live and there's a communication to say congrats we're live and then <laughs> it's kind of silent you don't know how the project how the change is progressing how effective it is so i really want to highlight that it's important to think of what you're going to do post go live until you've reached the stability that you set out to upfront. Another very important uh, element to highlight in what we do with the comms plan is that it's not a one size fits all. It's not just one emailer or one newsletter that goes out. Deep thought and consideration needs to be given to the different uh, areas, the different stakeholders, the type of roles. It could even be based on geographies that might require different type of information. And that there's multiple way of ways of disseminating that information as well, different mechanisms to use. Um, and the, the communication plan is really to build the initial understanding of the project, but it will evolve. So those messages continuously need to be revisited as you're progressing through the transformation initiative. So that's a bit about what the deliverable is. Why it's done is really, as I said up front, to have an effective way to get everybody engaged and to have the correct information sent out to ensure that there's alignment and understanding. I will hand over to Nate here because I can go on and on. So <laughs> Nate, over to you to discuss a bit more on the how we do it. Okay, this is great, and and we're actually this is a this is a great time to be presenting this because um, we're working with the client this week on their communications plan. So we have a lot of real relevant examples that we we've been working on this week. But patient plan when we talk about the how, it's it's first of all talking about the audience. Um, who who is the audience that you hope to reach? And and how, what is their um, what is the key message that you want to communicate? And throughout the or throughout the initiative, the, the communication is going to be different. It's going to be different before you start the project, during the project, go live and post go live. So we want to first of all say who's the audience, who are we trying to reach, what are we going to be communicating throughout the different phases of the project. And then really what channels that we're going to use. We, we have a lot of manufacturing clients. A lot of um, the employees at our clients are on the shop floor, so they're, they're not using a lot of email. They're a lot more interactive face-to-face -face communications. That's going to be different than the executive suite who's going to be each other most often through email, through Zoom calls, and through conference calls. So you really want to sit down and say, how are we going to communicate to these individuals? And again, how is that going to change throughout the project? As, as we're working on, um, on these different change phases, say, you know, how, how, it, how has it been done in the past? How are we going to do it? And then really sit down and say, what, what do we need to change? What do we need to put in place? 
um, to, to get the communication out there. Um, it, it, this is this is often, uh, you know, for companies, again, uh, kind of going back to a, a point we made earlier, for organizations that um, have a good communication plan in place, this is really just sitting down and more formalizing how we're going to do this throughout this change initiative. So this, out of all the deliverables, is one of those that it's really not only creating this plan, but it's really confirming, hey, how are you going to change and putting a lot of detail around just exactly what this plan looks like. Absolutely. Great stuff, guys. Do you mind if we jump into a few questions here from the audience? Excellent. Yes, well, thank you again for all these great questions. Again, you have my full commitment that we will get to them all, um, whether it is live here or after in the comments, we'll address them. Um, so this is a great one um, from Ghassan. Again, he's on our CIO panel, so feel free to um, join us later this afternoon. Uh, great insight from him always. But what if a readiness document says that a lot of work needs to happen before jumping into a digital transformation project? How long can a client wait? And what if they refuse to do all the prerequisites? Well, you know, I think I think this is this is a great question, and um, we're gonna we're gonna hit a little bit on this later on in our presentation. But um, you know, it's it's never there's. I would say that that with all of this, it's it's never too late to start. Um, and when you say how long can a client wait, well, I think the key is that it, it's really important to get started. So if you don't have um, if, if they refuse to do all the prerequisites if they don't have the if they don't have the time or they don't see the importance it's still important to get something started so when when we talk about this readiness document um, <clears throat> while we might not um, be putting a lot of formality around it I think that the key is that it's it's something that you just need to jump into so you no know, really I, I I like to refer to it as if you don't know what your starting point is and if you skip this step, how do you know what you need to do to get to where you're going? If you don't know where you are now, you're never going to be able to, to, to know what the steps are to get you to where you want to go just because you don't know where you are. Absolutely. And then um, I'll bring up this one, too, and maybe we'll start with you, Donia, on, on this piece of it. Um, <laughs> And get your insight. I know you your guys are chomping at the bit to talk. All our OCMs are, and I feel that way too. Um, but do you ever find do you ever find a challenge to get the right timing in the communication plans? Too early, people ignore it as irrelevant, but gives but needs to give the audience enough warning of what's coming and how they're going to be impacted. So can you speak to that a little bit, Donia? Yes, I can. Thank you, Kyla. Um, you know. Doing all of this in reality is challenging because the world is obviously moving fast. There's a lot of um, risks that might come up. So, of course, there are challenges that come up. And, so, you know, sometimes there's a feel that the timing is never right. But the important thing is that regardless of the challenges, it needs to be done. You know, you might not, if you keep on waiting and saying the time is not right, Nothing will go out. So, if, Carla, if you can please just pull up the, the rest of the question as well. I know I'm tackling the first part of it. So my answer to that is even if there are challenges, it is very important to get the communication out there. And uh, just to highlight that we spoke about multiple, challenge, uh, multiple channels 
And you're right. Some people don't have time to read an email or an email is not the best way, for example, for some people. So try and be consistent with the messaging. Get it out there. Uh, uh, for example, I can I just give you something really practical is if you have all of the leadership aligned, a simple thing is to request that in all the team meetings, you know, they just update all the employees in the area about what's happening, where we are and some of the key challenges. It could literally be as simple as that, uh, to tackle the challenges of the timing and holding off because of risks. I hope I answered the question correct, uh, that the question that was asked. Unfortunately, I cannot see the questions while they are, while I'm screen sharing. <laughs> so I, if I've missed anything, please let me know, Kyla. No worries. We have some great questions coming in, but let's keep going on um, your, your hows um, here and then we'll, we'll, jump back in. So keep popping those in the chat. We're watching them. Thank you so much, Kyla. And thank you, everybody, for your engagement. Uh, we're going to next talk about the change impact plan. And uh, when we started off, we said the change readiness is really the meat. It has all the information. And um, between Nate and I, we agreed the change impact plan is, is probably the heart of everything, because this is where you really start to get into the details of the change impact that's happening. And what's very important to highlight here is that this is all the types of change you bring in if there's going to be a process change or a role change. It's not just the items relating to the technology and really go through every change one by one, looking at the degree of impact of the change, which groups it's going to affect, uh, what's the perception of the change by those, those groups, and then coming out of that is what are the action plans that are going to be put into place. And those actions can feed into your change management plan or back into your communications plan, and, and then you can also create a heat map where you look at what are the top changes and what are the top priorities. Um, I just want to make sure I've told you everything here. So, and, and what some people ask about a stakeholder assessment, often in the work we do, we include the stakeholder assessment as part of the change impact. And as I said, mapping out what changes are affecting which groups. So this is really done to be able to track the details of the changes and to know uh, which groups it's going to impact, which geographies it's going to impact, and to know what the types of changes are and that they are all being tackled. Nate, over to you to talk a bit on the how this is all done. Yeah, so this and this is really, again, kind of the, the meat of it. And this is really kind of the most challenging part of most of the change impact initiatives that we undertake. And this is really when we sit down with this is spending a lot of time with the executives and the end users to sit down and, and not so much focus on what their job is today. That's very important to say, how are you doing it today? But how are you doing it today? How are you going to be doing um, how are you going to be conducting business in the future and what that changes? Um, it's really sitting down and um, and finding out, uh, you know, what are uh, tracking all the changes so that it's, sometimes it's as little as we're going to be calling fields different names. 
We're going to be uh, tracking things differently all the way through to um, the new technology will change the way our organization is structured. People are doing their jobs. The different work streams will be divvying the work up differently. So it's really sitting down and saying, um, you know, what are those challenges? What are the what what are we um, you know what are what are the big ones? What are the small ones? Keeping track of all of them and um, really, while everything's important, let's focus on the top change impacts. Let's address those and let's really make sure that we have a good assessment of what are our opportunities, what are our challenges, what are our strengths, and what are our weaknesses. Do, are we ready for this change? Is your impact? Do we need to train differently? Do we need to put different skill sets into our employees? Or is this something that it's just going to be, you know, I turn on a screen tomorrow morning, it looks a little bit different, I call things a little bit different in, within the system, and it's really not going to be much of a change. So it's, it's sitting down and just getting a really clear assessment on where we are, where we're going to be, and how ready we are for the impact that's going to happen with the new initiative. Excellent stuff, guys. We obviously have more questions. So, so I'm going to read this one. It's um, from one of our viewers on YouTube. So thank you so much for watching. Sometimes the, man the management requires plans with timelines when actual readiness is not yet established. How can you tackle this situation and convince management to focus on the readiness first? Oh, that's a that's a great question. Um, I, you know, I, I think it's um, you know, I think it's just probably the best way that I would answer that is just to sit down and really clearly lay out what what the what the initiative is, have a good plan, and show the importance of, of each one of the steps. I know that that's a little bit of a a high level answer and I'm not sure if I'm answering the question correctly, but I think it's it's really just sitting down and saying, you know, here's our comprehensive plan for the entire initiative, um, laying it out and, and talking through the importance of due to get through this initiative. And and Nate, if I could add to that, uh, something to that, that, you know, we, we almost want to say it's never too late. So what I've seen happen in this scenario is often at one point you'll see the negative impact of not having done the readiness. Perhaps, you know, the changes already, if you have several releases, you might see that already after one release, there's no response. It's not, there's no adoption. So it's very important that even if you haven't done the readiness up front to still go back, pause and look and use that to go back to leaders and say, well, we need to do it differently this time. Often, unfortunately, it's learning through mistakes in this case. And um, I'm just reading the question on my other screen here. Um, when readiness, what you can, what I think is also important, just that first part is about um, when how to tackle it when readiness is not yet established, is if you as an individual are aware of potential challenges or potential pitfalls that you really believe this is not going to work, this change is not going to be effective if we don't address, you know, have the courage and, and be direct to go and, and actually show what those pitfalls are or what those challenges are. 
instead of just, you know, saying, let's do a readiness. Sometimes leaders really need to see the practical outcomes. I hope that helps. Yeah, I think so. And and I'll just add, even though I'm not on the panel, but, um, you know, I just like to share my opinion. You guys know that. Um, but so I, I think it's one thing is to bring in the experts because a lot of times mm -hmm. that internal trust isn't always established, which is not a bad thing. But bringing in data uh, around external um, change management consultants or change management experts to show your executive team or your management team, like this is our experience, this is the data around what we see as far as failures if you don't establish that readiness. So just, you know, a little color for you there. Um, but thank you for the questions. I know you have more here in the chat and we'll we'll get to them as well, but I'll hand it back over to you, um, Donia and Nate. Thank you. Thank you, Kyla. All right. So next up is our the training plan. And as with the communication plan, this is a comprehensive plan of the training support that's required. And very importantly, as mentioned with the comms plan, it should look at the training that's required during the implementation, but also ongoing training that's going to be required and that will be assessed actually our next topic is metrics and kpis but it's important to realize that you'll need some kind of feedback mechanism in order to understand the training gaps even after going live <laughs> so again it's not like let's train everybody send out user manuals the initiative has gone live and then you think that training is done so please remember that when you're looking at a training plan and as with the the comms plan it looks at the different stakeholder groups so often when i've done this previously i would look at the stakeholder groupings that were addressed in the communications plan that could potentially be a match or i can give you another example where I was part of a workday rollout for a large organization and the training was tailored um, against the key user groups. In this case, it was like the HR community, the management team, and then the employees. So we just had three groupings in that case. And very, very important is to look at the methods of training. Really, it's not just screenshots, you know, or a manual. There's a lot of different me methods that can be used as well as different resources. So you might consider, for example, having internal trainers, which case they would need to be trained. So in that scenario, you would do train the training, train the trainers, <laughs> or um, alternatively on this workday project, for example, we had videos, we had online FAQ, we had online forums, and something that I think was very successful was we, we used the change champions to actually be super users. And so in every area, there was a super user and people could literally go to a person and, and ask them, how do I do this? And that's also kind of part of the training. Um, that was before COVID, so we were all in an office and you could go to one person. But of course, you could still have a super user as in an expert you know, in, even in the virtual space. And those are really some of the key messages around what the training plan is and why it's done is to make sure that the educational needs are met throughout the initiative. I'm going to emphasize it again and post the initiative to have that ongoing learning. 
until you feel that this the status quo has been reached. Okay, we're here replaying you a clip of Donia Nate from Third Stage Consulting talking about measuring and delivering organizational change programs. We've got a lot more to cover, but first we're gonna take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. And we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings. And the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 105. We're here playing a clip with Donia Nate from Third Stage Consulting talking about uh, measuring change and some of the deliverables within change management. Okay, so when we, we talk about the, the how on the training plan, um, it, it really it's really a pretty straightforward uh, way that we, our uh, methodology that we help organizations create these training plans. And it's really first sitting down and saying, what are the end user groups? Uh, again, Different, different groups are going to require different training depending on their usage of the new technology and their comfort with technology as a whole. Um, and then it's really sitting down and saying, what are the select um, training methods that are available? Uh, again, we, we find a lot of times, and especially in organizations that haven't completed a technology initiative in the last five years, a lot different now. So that we're, we're all used to 10, 15 years ago where you put a manual in front of someone, they flip through page one, page two, and they go through and use the system. Now there's a lot more interactive ways of training. There's a lot more um, opportunities to individual specific user. Um, then we sit there and say, what, what, are the, what are the strengths, weaknesses, and gaps with the training methods and the resources in an organization. Do they have a formal training organization? Do they have an education department? Do they have employees in other areas throughout the organization? And is this something we can piggyback on that? Um, and then it's really sitting down and saying, what is the timeline and how, how are we going to work back from go live, post go live, working backwards to say, when do we start training? I think it's really important here to talk about the fact that um, we, without it, you know, without fail, every one of our 
clients, we talk about the fact that when we kick off a change management initiative, training, even though it's far down the line as far as a, an implementation, is really something that needs to start today. You really need to sit down and say, how are we going to train the people? And you really have to start with that mindset of, how are we going to get people ready to use the technology? If you have the technology, you can have the best technology in place. If people don't know how to use it, if they're not trained efficiently and effectively, you're going to think that we say, hey, right now, let's start from the beginning. And as we're going through this implementation, let's think about how we're going to get people ready to use it. And how we're going to make them comfortable with the system going forward. Yeah. Thanks. Sorry, Donia. I was going to see if we could pop in with a few more questions, if you don't mind. Thank you. Uh, Carla, while you bring up Krisha, I just wanted to thank Nate for, for mentioning about that it's throughout the journey. We don't just look at training right at the end. It's, it would be too late if it's, you know, because it's done at the end, people, often it's thought about just before go live. So it is important to have it throughout the the journey and this brings me to the point that i'm hoping you can the audience talking to the audience you can see that how all of these are weaving into each other already all these deliverables and that these deliverables are become live documents so a lot of the feedback you get once you've done the change impact once you've gotten feedback from communication to keep feeding the training plan throughout the journey and refining the documentation Thank you, Carla, for allowing me oh, to Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that is perfect. <laughs> like you are reading the mind of this user um, because oh. this is a, a very similar question. Yes. Um, so one of our, our LinkedIn audience members said, is change management something that can be dialed into the program at different points? Or is it a big mistake to not integrate it from beginning to end? So maybe, um, Nate, we'll start with you on that one. Yeah, this is this is a great question, and this is something um, that really hits home. One of one of our biggest clients here at Third Stage, we kicked off about a year ago. Um, they were about um, around nine months into a technology initiative, the implementation program. Um, we were called in, um, you know, where I would say nine months into a twenty-four month um, initiative, and um, really. I would say it's never too late to start. So um, it, it's while it while it, it it it's ideal. You know, obviously the the best case scenario is to start everything at the beginning. It's never too late to start, and you can always go through and you can make up the steps and you can catch up to where you are. Um, it, it's it's like a lot of different. Um, pieces of a digital transformation. It's something that's really important that you um, address change, that you um, address the, the change impacts, the change initiative that you're going through. Never too late to start and um, always, you, there's always something that you can gain out of it by doing it, even if it's really late within the, the project. Excellent. And Donia, anything to add to that? Yes, yes. Um, I, I want to bring in here, this is it's really great uh, to bring in this element of a health check. I love this word. <laughs> it's, it's something that I've been more recently in my career exposed to. I think because of these kind of scenarios that have, that like this user has brought up, 
you know, where things are not done up front. And I really like this concept of a health check. And as Nate mentioned, we are working with some companies that have actually had this pitfall, pitfalls and not done it up front and realized, okay, we need to start with this or we need to wave, weave it through. So we stop, we pause, we come in, we do a health check against all the uh, categories, all the objectives of change management, look at what are the gaps and what is the corrective action that can be taken. All great stuff. Um, and then uh, we have a few more questions here. Do you guys want to address those now or do you want to finish up with your PowerPoint? We can do it at the end. Carla, we've got one more uh, deliverable to go through. So great. just to connect all five and it might just close off the picture. Uh, do you agree, Nate, that we quickly finish off? Yeah, and, and KPIs are, are fairly quick, uh, fairly yes. straightforward. So let's let's do that and then we'll jump into some questions and I know we're running a little bit behind, so okay. uh, we could go through KPIs real quick. All right, KPIs, as, as Nate said, very quickly, uh, but very important <laughs> and something that comes uh, needs to be looked at right at the beginning. If you remember with that readiness document we spoke about, we look into why is this change taking place? Already from there, you need to ask the question of, what do we want to achieve and how will it be measured? And that needs to be relevant. It needs to be measurable. It needs to be agreed. So that come down the line, you hit the, press the button, you add go live, and then you can actually measure both the success of the benefits of the, the change as well as the user adoption. And that will allow to take corrective action if something is picked up. Um, I'm going to just move on to the how because I know we've got very little time. <laughs> Again, I could speak about it for, for hours. Go ahead, Nate. Yeah, so basically this this is um, KPIs are really uh, something that we link back to the first deliverable that we start with, and that is really sitting down and talking to the end users and the leadership and saying, what is it that you, um, what are your goals from this new technology initiative? And it's really saying, um, what do you hope to get out of the technology? Um, how are we going to measure what success is? measuring, um, creating a measuring mechanism and um, and really sitting down and starting to say, can we measure how we're doing things today and um, and get a baseline for where we are today and where we will, and then start to then really track key performance indicators, not only on our current technology, but as we go live and as post, as we go post live, and using the system to, to really sit down and say, how are we benefiting from this technology? This is really one of the most deliverables within a change management initiative. However, I say this is really probably one that organizations struggle with the most. It's really mm -hmm. hard to define. It's really hard to, um, to measure. It's really hard to track, but organizations that and clearly create KPIs and and run their business based on the success and on the benefits that they're getting from their technology really see the most benefit from a new technology initiative. Awesome, guys. Well, if, if we can, we're going to take a few extra minutes to um, go over these questions. 
um, if you're ready for that. Um, so if you if you're done sharing, we, I can put them up here on screen if you if you want to be able to see them. Um, so first of all, I just want to Lindsay has a great question here. Um, so are all the deliverables shown at the beginning or are they in parallel or what does that look mm -hmm. like as far as those? Donia, you want to take that? Yeah, maybe I can. I was just going to say, maybe I could take that, Nate. And it actually works very well with this final slide that we've got on. So they they are not a stepping stone. Yes, absolutely. They can be done in parallel. There's some that you would like, obviously, likely want to start up front. You know, some that are clearly up front, for example, the readiness assessment. Um, but once it's done, the readiness assessment, it becomes a live document and you need to continue feeding that document as more clarity and more is uh, more clarity, more changes are defined along the way. And then as you sort of like start one, you carry on with it, you start the next one and then you start the next one. So they do end up moving in parallel. And I'm really glad you asked this because our final slide shows suddenly 15 items and that's because we want to show you that these the um, deliverables that run in parallel are addressing what we consider these 15 objectives and the most important thing is to reach these objectives whether you're going in parallel you might go a bit like in a circle but ultimately to make sure you address all the objectives of change management that are listed here and, and just one thing to add to that, I, I think, you, Danya, you really made a great point, and that is um, <clears throat> there is some linear nature to these deliverables, but it's really um, when we sit down with the client and we're kicking off a change management initiative, we make sure that we spend uh, a good day at the beginning of a project going through all of these deliverables and all of these phases of a change management initiative because they, they do need to work in parallel. They do need to, um, you need to start KPIs. At, uh, you need to start thinking about them at the beginning of a project. You need to start thinking about the way you're gonna communicate, the way you're gonna train your employees. So while it's, you know, it, it probably, uh, it always starts off with assessment to really say, how ready are we for this change? It, it, it's really important to know that um, all of these need to be addressed from the beginning. So. Um, you need to start thinking about all five right from the start. Absolutely. Definitely something um, to to consider. So this is a really interesting question, too. Um, and I think it goes into something that Eric said and that Dominic also touched on in his quality assurance and the overall ROI of a digital transformation is that concept of user acceptance. Um, so this question says, do you think it's useful to combine the planning for user acceptance testing and wider training as training for UAT? Um, and kind of saying, can people get familiar with the new process and technology? I'm just taking a moment to really get to the heart of this question. <laughs> I think so, too. I think, I think it's basically... Um, user acceptance testing and the wider training, should those be um, done together? Or what does that look like as far as not only the structure, but how do you get them familiar outside of testing um, to with the new process and technology? 
Yeah. Well, the way I see it is that uh, they probably different things. So the user acceptance testing is usually done with a small group to see, you know, how's this technology go, uh, matching to the requirements. Whereas when we're talking training, we're actually looking at training across the organization, across all the stakeholders, uh, people that are somehow engaging with this change. Everybody needs to be taken into consideration. Uh, so I see UAT group as a smaller group, if I understood the question correctly. And um, obviously the people doing the UAT will probably get to have a little bit more interaction with the system up front, but really everybody needs to be considered in the training plan. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think it's I think it's important just to add to that. None of these happen in a bubble. They're they're all part mm -hmm. of system integration, mm -hmm. testing, training, and user acceptance test needs to happen concurrently. It all needs to happen considering all the other pieces. So you don't just complete user acceptance testing, system integration testing, and training. They're all happening at the same time. Yes, and, and I think that that cohesion is so important because sometimes those silos can kind of bubble up in these change management um, processes or plans, mostly because some some teams are really good at change and some teams have a different subculture. So I know there's lots of questions here, and I really appreciate all of the great questions. Um, we're going to do one more um, from YouTube and then let Donia and Nate get back to uh, their client work. Um, but let's read this question. So how do we align the change management and the project management of the actual digital transformation requirements? Is one part of the other? Are they managed by two different teams or are they a se sequential endeavor? So let's let's start with you on this one, Donia. Yes. Okay. Thank you, Kyla. So the way I see this is that the change management is part of the project management. So a project manager would need to look at so many elements of the, um, of the entire project, for example, the development of the actual system, for example, or a piece of customization. And the change management steps would be part of that overall plan. So they, as Nate said, all of these things are integrated. In terms of management by separate teams, part of it, we highly recommend that there are focused change management resources, especially in larger projects. In some cases, if it's a very small uh, company, for example, or a very small change, you, as long as change management is addressed, it can be done by the same project management team. Um, but as I started out saying, project management looks at a lot of different elements and we need the change management expertise to focus. You saw all those different deliverables, how they feed into each other, looking at the different impacts of different groups. So it's very important to have the change management focus working integrated into the full project. Thank you. Excellent. Absolutely. Won't, won't even elaborate on that. That was a great, great answer. <laughs> Yeah. Just like my drop situation here. Um, great, okay. <laughs> great, um, great session, you guys. Thank you so much. And I know, um, thank you to all of our great engagement. I know you have a lot of questions. All right. Thank you, Donia and Nate. Great conversation. Great presentation. Really appreciate that. It's a, it's sort of that pragmatic, tangible side of change that is oftentimes missing in effective change management programs. So it was really good to hear 
your perspectives on that and hopefully the audience uh, agrees with that as well i've uh, got a few takeaways and and uh debriefs that we're going to talk about kyler and i will first we're going to take a quick break you're listening to transformation ground control Interested in working for a company that truly values your unique skills and experience? Here at Third Stage, we don't hire based on resumes alone. We look at the full candidate, experience, and willingness to provide excellent service for our clients. Within a technology independent and agnostic consulting firm, you have the opportunity to learn across industries with a diverse group of clients. Our consultants also have the opportunity to diversify their portfolio and learn across technology systems. If you're interested in joining a high growth entrepreneurial organization, please reach out to us at work at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 105. And uh, we just had Donia and Nate presenting on the measurement of change management. And they got into some of the change management deliverables uh, within that conversation as well. Uh, what were some of your takeaways from that uh, presentation, Kyler? Well, that presentation, I, I'm going to take full credit for it because I asked <laughs> them <laughs> humbly. All you. Yeah, right. To um, to showcase what is a change management deliverable? When we go in and those change consultants, as you and Frisco talk about, what should you be expecting from them to be able to see for an organization? And also when you're a project sponsor, how can you establish value in understanding what what that actually will produce as far as data? So I think they did such a good job as two of our top change practitioners globally of showcasing how they go into organizations, how they assess it, and the additional deliverables that they come up with in, in collaboration with the overall um, organization. Anytime you go through a change, it's complex. It's unique. And understanding and assessing your own identity as a company culture is really critical to ensuring that you're able to achieve success in whatever you're going through. So I think that list there, um, and if you do have questions about what they presented in their deliverable list, just go ahead and comment right here. We'd love to hear from you, and then I'll tag them as well so they can, they can give an answer um, to any updated questions. Uh, but I love getting into really the concrete understanding of what is an asset of change management and the fact that it actually can be measured and add add um, substantial value to the overall project. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, and I think that's one of the things that drives myself and others crazy about change management in general is when you're too fluffy and it's too conceptual, it's too kumbaya and feel, let's make sure everyone feel good. And it, it, there's not that tangible value and tangible output that you expect to see from other, you know, aspects of transformation. So I, I, I agree with you. I think that was a, a really good presentation, a good way to connect the dots between strategy and execution of change management. hundred percent. And definitely follow Nate and Donia on LinkedIn if you don't already, because they are constantly sharing great content around organizational change management um, and as well. So uh, definitely a great presentation there. I'm glad we were able to kind of solidify the strategic approach around change management and, and at least how we, our methodology works here at third stage. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. Well, well, thank you for that. And uh, thank you to all of our guests, uh, Donia and Nate, as well as uh, Friska and, and 
as always, you as well, Kyler's, thank you for uh, another great episode. And thank you to the audience for listening and commenting and providing all the great feedback. And thank you in advance for sharing this with colleagues, subscribing, liking, leaving us comments, all that stuff that, that helps get the word out to more people, helps make the show more interesting and really appreciate everyone's uh, engagement and being part of this show and this digital transformation community that we're, we're creating here. So uh, new episodes every Wednesday. YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, as well as audio podcast platforms throughout the world. Be sure to subscribe, like us, comment, et cetera. And uh, we will see you next Wednesday on Transformation Ground Control. Have a great week in the meantime, and we'll see you soon. Nailed it. You're welcome, Cassie. Yeah. You only had it. You only cut we're going to have to do today. Strong start. Absolutely. <laughs> sorry. Can you, sorry. The Alexa just started playing wheels on the bus. So let me just stop that. Okay. No problem. We can keep this in, Cassie. Yeah. Or not.